Welcome to Orion Valley. I'm Josh Wall. I'm Rihanna Hudson. Frankly, I love movies. And frankly, I love books. Welcome to our podcast where we dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and discuss why we love the medium so much. We're currently running our series Off the Shelf, where we discuss film adaptations of novels and see how they compare to each other. Ladies and gentlemen, we have made it to the end of uh, Frankly, I Love Movies Off the Shelf. We are here with the final episode talking about one of probably the most anticipated episode of this show. We saved the best for last. We started with one of the most famous uh, adaptations with Fight Club. and I think we're ending with one of the best. I think, Rihanna, this is one that we... When we started this venture, we knew that this was one that we had to talk about. This was like at the top of the list. So how are you feeling today? Are you excited to talk about American Psycho? Oh, I'm very excited. I can't believe that we are here. I've been waiting for this episode the entire time. I think this has just been uh, an amazing journey. And to cap it off with this title, I think it is just perfect because I think this is one that really kind of encapsulates everything that we've been trying to talk about, about authorship and about adaptation and about the film medium and the, you know, English language, just everything we've been doing is encapsulated uh, in American Psycho, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, like 100%. First, I, I want to start with you because, you know, this was uh, is, a, is a personal favorite of yours. Have How many times have you read the book at this point? Oh my God. I think this was like my fifth time reading it. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> Scattered over like a decade or so. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a reread every two years or something. So do you remember your first reading? Like what made you pick it up? Like when, how did you become, no, uh, like how did you, how did this title come to you? Uh, really just being a teenager, very into the, uh, the edgy band books stuff. Oh, yeah. um, I think I was like 14 when I first read this book, which is uh, very funny in hindsight. Yeah. So yeah, I was like 14. I put this and uh, Honan Vasquez's graphic novel, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac, on the same Christmas wish list, which um, <laughs> the adults in my life who didn't know any better both just uh, purchased for me. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, at that age, I was I was very into, you know, band books and uh extreme horror films and um still have like love for all those kinds of things today as an adult just uh the only difference being it's not the only media i consume these days Mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to back then uh so yeah i was 14 absolutely too young to read this book um (laughs) but i did anyway and I really this this rereading as an adult. I'm you know a decade later from the first time I read it um, was probably the most valuable. Not only you know I was reading it um, with the consciousness of you know recording this series and uh, things to kind of keep an eye out for during my reading and then uh, the subsequent viewing of the film, but uh, also just a lot of the political kind of uh commentary that the Mm -hmm. book stands for you know the 80s reagan era Mm -hmm. very specific mentions of the uh iran contra uh situation stuff like that that uh and then of course the general sweeping commentary parody whatever uh of capitalism yeah materialism that's stuff that i definitely just didn't get out of the book (laughs) as a teenager Uh, as a teenager i just got like ooh extreme 
gore and pornography and humor. I like a lot of the humor did absolutely stick out to me and make me laugh. Um, because as I'm sure we'll talk about, it's, it's like one of the funniest books ever. I think it's a hilarious book. Like nonstop, (laughs) like just in laugh riot. It's, it honestly is because it's not just like things that are said and there are tons of funny, like hilarious lines, but like, structurally like the way certain chapters go into each other is like it's so funny sometimes you're just like how does one person think of this it's, it's hysterical <laughs> and we'll, we'll get into it um this was my first time reading it um but i i wanted to mention the first time i had heard about this book sure. um because it's also it's kind of another shared interest of ours there's an episode of mystery science theater where oh, yeah. um the, it's one of the earlier episodes where they're doing like the invention exchange and uh there's the joel and the robots they had an invention uh for serial novels like because they're like oh kids love to read the back of cereal boxes so they like put full novels on the back of cereal boxes while they're eating so one of them is like interview with the vampires on the back of count chocula you know and one of them was uh on the back of kaboom was american psycho (laughs) And they were like, you know, Brett Easton Ellis is controversial, yet all but forgotten American Psycho. And I was like, all right, I'm going to log that in the back of my brain. And then I didn't really think about it again until when I was in high school, um, my brother, who was um, a psychology major in college, they had watched this in one of his classes. And I remember when he came home one time, he was like, have you seen this? And I was like, no, I haven't. He goes, you should watch it and then process it and then look up like kind of what it's about like what it's trying to say because i think what's funny is that this is another one i think there's a lot of similarities between like this and fight club in uh more ways than one at least oh, in yeah, terms yeah. of some uh, symbolically almost like there's some overlap there and i think in terms of a film you know it it is one of those like you kind of see it in high school or like early on and you kind of it's one of those like introductory to like your film knowledge like uh, films, you know, along with like Fight Club or Reservoir Dogs or like something like that. And I remember watching the movie when I was like 14 and I was just like, this is one of the most like entertaining, like bonkers journeys that you could <laughs> possibly go on. And it's only gotten better with time. It's always been one of my favorites. It's one that's great to go back and rewatch. And I was just so excited to delve deep into, you know, the the original text and see because this was our longest text that we've had yeah, to uh, cover. Three ninety nine pages. Yes, yeah, that's that's quite a quite an undertaking. <laughs> and uh, but I was also I I was aware of the you know certain controversies surrounding Brett Easton Ellis just as a writer. And, you know, this book in particular with the amount of violence and specifically violence towards women and some of the, you know, uh, positions that the the book that people think that uh, the book is trying to take. But what the book is actually saying, that's another one where people think that this book is promoting something, but really it's saying something else kind of deeper, like we talked about with Fight Club. Mm -hmm. But my God, what an incredible book this is. Yeah, I'm so happy that you loved it. It is so chaotic. (laughs) It is just an a, a ride unlike any other that I've read. Like honestly, ever. It is so fascinating the way that Ellis takes you deep into this world, and it's not again. It's a it's a book that's not structured in a typical like single plot element is driving the story forward. Ellis like makes you like puts you in this world that is so gross and so awful, but feels so like just real and comical 
but then kind of makes you be like, I'm enjoying this. Like, it's so, <laughs> so strange. Um, and before I, I should say uh, before, um, you know, we get too deep into it. If, if you're not familiar, you know, American Psycho is told from the first person point of view of one Patrick Bateman who is an investment banker in New York City and also uh, a serial killer. Uh, as And we go on this journey of him as he you know, goes to many restaurants, hangs out with his um, super toxic male uh, <laughs> investment banker friends, uh, has affairs and kills strippers, like all of this does crazy stuff. Does a lot stuff. of cocaine. Does a lot of cocaine, lots Pops of drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, rents videotapes. You know, this man. <laughs> the bodyguard. The, uh, uh, watches porn listens to a lot of music just (laughs) fascinating character and i don't know i don't really know like honestly where to start like i just think it's it's such a a hypnotic book Uh, in that way we could start i think we should talk about brett easton ellis's other work because it's Mm -hmm. relevant and i can't remember did you say you've read less than zero i haven't no okay okay um well that's his first novel which Mm. was immediately a smash hit and he published it at the stupidly young age of 23 Mm -hmm. um and then you know it kind of uh immediately turned him into you know a a celebrity basically Uh, Mm -hmm. he he moved to new york after graduating school with his ba and uh had already published less than zero and was extremely successful and in new york he he really lived as a celebrity he Mm -hmm. rubbed elbows you know parties and art galleries whatever with uh celebrities and and famous artists and then was part of what he calls a a literary brat pack Mm -hmm. uh so extremely successful and rightfully so i i think i think brett easton ellis is phenomenally talented he he's one of my favorite writers and uh it, it seems like he is like an interpersonal nightmare he seems very obnoxious especially i i read some of his uh essays and his most recent book i believe i don't think he's published anything since um white which caused Mm -hmm. some controversy because people you know kind of assumed he was just talking about whatever kind of uh conservative views he has uh either correctly or uh incorrectly making that assumption so Brady Sinellis's first three novels are uh his works that I'm the most familiar with Lesson Zero and then he published Rules of Attraction which I can't remember if that was as successful um it all it got a movie adaptation mm-hmm. uh, and so did Lesson Zero and then the third book in what in white he refers to as a trilogy of uh, you know, the 80s Reagan era excess, um, because all three books are set in the 1980s mm-hmm. um, and focus around youth and uh, cynical, <laughs> like almost lost youth that have mm-hmm. everything they could possibly want. Again, th- th- that excess, mm-hmm. um, but still nothing is ever enough. And uh, all three books almost kind of end on the same note of the main character, or at least one of the main characters, because uh, Rules of Attraction is an ensemble novel, uh, choosing to kind of walk away from this life that they still kind of have everything, or at the very least continue to be a part of it, but just mentally like check out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's almost like an extended universe of <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis, Rules of Attraction, one of the main characters is Sean Bateman, 
Patrick Bateman's brother, younger mm-hmm. brother, who also makes an appearance in uh, the American Psycho novel in one of the funniest chapters. It's unbelievable. Uh, I love that chapter. <laughs> I couldn't when- believe. Like, <laughs> I was I was almost thinking that he was going to be like, oh, like we're going to see like Patrick's family is like completely different than him. No, his brother's like almost worse. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. he's- <laughs> and and Sean is is one of the main characters of uh, and, and Sean Bateman makes, makes no appearance in the film, obviously, mm-hmm. in, in the American Psycho film. Um, but he's one of the main characters of Rules of Attraction, probably the most sympathetic narrator, even though he is a complete asshole still Mm -hmm. um and we get a a chapter in rules of attraction told from the perspective of patrick bateman and so that was brett easton ellis's and he talks about this in white how he first conceived the character of patrick bateman Mm -hmm. uh he had this idea of of this like lonely yuppie working on wall street and originally when he wrote um you know his first outline and drafts whatever of American Psycho, uh, it was much more straightforward and grounded in reality, mm-hmm. uh, similar to Less Than Zero Rules of Attraction, where there was like no murder, no pornographic sex scenes. It was a much more straightforward, um, classic Bright Easton Ellis narrative of this jaded, morally empty young man. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of living in and thriving in, but still completely miserable in this decadent world where he has everything he could ever want, including mm-hmm. looks and, and women, whatever, but still suffering and being just completely upset and depressed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that was the original uh, idea of it. And, you know, especially it, it because of how, straightforward Patrick Bateman's character is in Rules of Attraction. I read Rules of Attraction after reading American Psycho and it's and it was it was fun to see Patrick's character read and narrate completely straight mm-hmm. um and not like a fucking lunatic. Yeah. Yeah, Brady Sinellis talks about how his his research for American Psycho really just kind of consisted of hanging out with Wall Street guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was at a dinner with a group of Wall Street guys and listening to them talk about getting like manicures and tanned and going to the gym and their suits and whatever, uh, where Brady Stanellis just kind of on a whim got the idea to make Patrick Bateman a serial killer. Mm-hmm. And from then on, he, you know, reworked the novel and made it into what it is. I think that was a genius idea because I, I almost think, I, I think it would have worked if it was completely straightforward and read like less than zero and less than zero still has flashes of, horrible miserable mm-hmm. things like at one point they watch a snuff film uh, like like so that those kinds of things exist in uh previous Brady Stanellis novels even though they're more straightforward but I, I think turning Patrick Bateman into a serial killer or not that's the other question <laughs> oh is he really a serial killer um <laughs> it was just you know just such a wonderful idea because mm-hmm. it just it works so perfectly and it, and it wouldn't have worked in uh his other two novels of again this this kind of 80s reagan era trilogy yeah. because those center around like college students uh, but i yeah. think like a wall street yuppie mm-hmm. um it's like a perfect setting for a serial killer or, yeah. a, or a not serial killer mm-hmm. and um brady Stanellis was also he again living in new york at the time that he wrote american cycle cycle jesus american <laughs> psycho um which obviously is set in new york 
and going to a lot of the clubs that are like name dropped in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And he says (laughs) in kind of a silly way, in my opinion, he's like, Patrick Bateman is me. I I was lost and (laughs) felt illusory uh, during that time in my life. Cause he was like 23 or 24. He was like super young. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he makes, he explains himself well. Um, You know, he talks about the uh, disconnect between being famous and, you know, reading about his name in the papers and how there are parties that people said they saw him at only because he RSVP'd, but he never actually went to. And mm-hmm. so he was like, it seemed that there was this idea of Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah. Um, but my actual existence was different from what the idea was. And and I think, you know, that kind of... Um, I simply am not there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, almost, it almost reads like uh, that famous monologue. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that shows in the book how like organic that feeling was. Yeah. Um, because oh my god, is Patrick Bateman just a complete lunatic? Oh and yeah, it's just so good. Uh, so yeah, I love Brady Stanellis. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I know he's he's an asshole for sure, mm-hmm. uh, very prickly. Um, but he's just so unbelievably talented. Yeah. Like. It, it's fine. I'll no. allow it. <laughs> hey, you know, talented people can also be terrible people. They but usually like, are, I feel. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> so. you know, we get great art out of it sometimes, though. So. But, like, yeah, I don't really want to dictate some of his, like, political leanings or, uh, you know, some of, like, his public eye, like, persona, like, too much. Mm-hmm. I, But I am, uh, you know, just fascinated by his writing style. Um, and I'm, He's like, so I, I am very excited to venture deeper i would love to read less than zero and rules of attraction and and rules very quickly i know we're not talking about rules of attraction but i i adore that book another one of my all-time favorites uh and you know it depicts um a love triangle and it's he just does it perfectly like Mm -hmm. it's so funny and also just like you really he he writes drama really excellently Mm -hmm. but still it never gets self-indulgent or anything like I cannot stress how talented he is as a writer. I just yeah. love his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it is fascinating how, and also, I mean, with American Psycho, how like we mentioned how long the book is, but like I, w- I was saying to you off mic that I was trying to take notes for you know while I was reading, but I found myself just I just kept going. Like I didn't want to stop mm-hmm. to kind of process it. Like you just kind of just get swept up in everything, and how like quickly he moves through like the story. And again, like the story is not like tracked in a like single action or a single like plot point, like moving everything forward. It is kind of illusory. Like you said, like you're just kind of in this restaurant and then you're at Patrick's apartment and he's doing crunches or he's in line at the video store and then he decides to kill someone. And the way that stuff kind of happens again, it's so hypnotic because on paper, you're like, I don't want to spend time in this world. This sounds awful. Like, I, mm-hmm. it just reminds me too much of things that I'm terrified of in real life. And then <laughs> you keep going chapter to chapter and you're just like, I don't want to stop reading this. Like, yeah. I'm so I'm just enjoying this thing that I don't that I shouldn't like. But yeah. it's so fun because very quickly to Brett Easton Ellis completely nails the pacing because yes. it, it does start to like ramp up. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really impressive how it is a book that basically it's fair to say just kind of depicts the same thing over and over and over again, oh, which yeah. is like uh-huh. the point mm-hmm. that's not a fault um, of the writer, obviously. Um, 
But despite just the same thing over and over again, same clubs, same restaurants, same conversations about clothing, same horrible, graphic, brutal murder. Mm-hmm. And- Which we will get into. <laughs> oh, sure. Um, Brett Easton Ellis really does a great job of ramping up just how much Patrick Bateman's sanity is slipping. Like, you really oh, yeah. see it in the novel. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Uh-huh. It just climbs and climbs and climbs and totally peaks and we don't get to see the drop off because the book kind of ends there but um oh god it's so good it's such a yeah it is a fascinating character study because you're left with so many questions but in a way that it makes it a better interactive experience you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like when we were talking about the green knight and how we were very confused at the end of that film (laughs) it was on a like fundamental level, you know, of <laughs> not trying, not really understanding what the point was or what was being done. Yeah. Whereas with American Psycho, on both cases, the the book and the film, I think, leaves you with a lot to think about and yeah. a lot of questions that are almost fun that they're that, that it's fun that they're not answered. You know, there's a lot yeah. of uh, ideas about perception and about reality, and obviously, like you know what actually happened versus what did happen you know um did obviously did he do these killings did he Mm -hmm. not is it all in his head is he just this movie-like character is or is he actually just you know someone who enjoys kind of this daydream fantasy we don't really know and i like that there's not a real concrete answer but that uh makes it more fun and also again because of how just so much is thrown at you in this book like it's sometimes hard to focus on just, you know, one thing. So you can't get the answer so quickly. And I just, I was fascinated by how much there was to process and what was going to be important and what um, was going to come back or some idea that was echoing throughout the rest of the book. Like one of my favorite things, and it's almost like uh, it's more played for humor, but it is a good showing of Patrick's like position in this world is the fact that like, the only thing he's really good for for anyone else is calling to ask about like fashion advice. <laughs> like people are just like, what's the best time to wear like a suit with a, a suit with a vest or something? Or like, can you wear Argyle socks with a sweater or something like that? Like, it's just, that's so funny. And the fact that he has like such detailed answers to every single question, but that's all he's good for. No one else <laughs> likes Patrick Bateman. And they constantly say this guy's like a dweeb. This guy's a oh, dork. Oh, yeah, a like, dork. He's so. And the book, I think, you know, shows that even more with the fact that <laughs> not only is he a lunatic, but this guy is so weird. He's, like, he's so awkward. I, I love. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. Mm. I just I love how expertly. It is shown, especially with without the aid of any kind of performance from an actor. Yeah. Um, I, like, Reddy Stanellis does it purely through uh, dialogue and, and the mm-hmm. wonderful first-person narration. Patrick Bateman is so socially awkward yes. and weird. Yes. Um, I love when he's explaining uh, something about Diet Coke and uh-huh. starts to almost cry. Yes. Because <laughs> explaining it to just a silent table of his colleagues (laughs) at one point he screams at one of his so-called friends about pizza yes yes (laughs) and he has to apologize 
Yes. Oh, I, yeah. He's like, I thought it was like uh, bland or something. Like he said, like, like, oh, well, well, Donald Trump likes this pizza. Like, oh, yeah. so now you like the pizza. Yeah. Like it's just, or, or there's that part where he's like, I can't remember. I think it's like after he kills the guy with the dog or something and he's like running away. And then he like passes by like a group of teenagers walking down the street. And he's it's almost like, hello, fellow kids. And he's trying to be like, you know, hey, I'm hip. And then they're just like, no, you're not cool. Like they're just like totally like he's so out of touch and just not a cool person to be around yet he's supposed to be this image of the most like perfectly well-cut groomed and beautiful handsome guy who has everything he could ever want and he's a fucking pipsqueak like that's so (laughs) funny and it's it, it creates some amazing moments of just but but again it's not just goofy like it adds to this idea like I'm glad he's not like a superhero, you know, even though he thinks that he is like, he's not like the perfect, like he's not the ruler. Yeah. You know, it it stresses how, or it, or it helps to highlight how much he is so desperate to fit in and conform Mm -hmm. and just so badly wants to be a part of this world that he also definitely does not enjoy. Um, Yeah. He, he benefits from it and enjoys the fact that he benefits from it. But I think it is like kind of clear that, he he doesn't enjoy anything about the world that he lives in yeah well uh, he's on a micro and macro scale well he says that too he says like doesn't uh evelyn say something like you know why why do you care and he goes because i want to fit in (laughs) (laughs) which is also in the film which is great and you know it's so clear like because i love like you said like how the tension ramps up and how he uh shows emotions at very specific period like points in the in the book but Mm -hmm. also of like just such great intensity like not just through murders but like there's that one point like early on where he's having sex with someone and then he was like trying to find like a specific lubricant or something oh, he's, like he's that. He's having sex with Courtney and then he's trying to find spermicide. Yes, spermicide. That's right. And he's just <laughs> screaming like, where is it? Like, he's like just so mad. And like, there's so many moments like that. There's another one where he like goes to like a Jewish deli and then he just like freaks the fuck out. Oh, and, and the chapter ends. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. It says so much racist stuff. And then the chapter just ends mid sentence. No period oh, yeah. no anything and it's like yeah. just a blackout like it's so it's so wild like it's such an insane journey to go on and to f- like focus on for so long like I, mm-hmm. I was just I was captivated by what was going on because I didn't know what was going to happen like even if it like the the title of the chapter like kind of gives you an idea like attempting <laughs> to cook and eat a girl you yeah. still don't know what's going to happen like I was just like baffled by by this novel well, it was th- that chapter too is also i hate to say it but there's something kind of funny about him describing the like bougie cookware that he owns but doesn't know how to use yeah and he's he's upset because he doesn't know how to cook and yeah. so he thinks he's screwing it up and it's just so absurd but also like there's so many funny just like lines that are said my yeah. biggest laugh in the book was when uh, there's there's a I think it's at the Christmas party where he convinces Evelyn to like leave the Christmas party and so they go out to like then they're gonna take Paul Owen his name's Paul Owen in the book not Paul yeah. Allen Paul Paul Owen's limousine and he's trying to convince the driver and he's like 
I don't remember how it leads to this, but he's talking about how there were um, little people like dressed as elves in the yeah. party. And he goes, do you know how horrifying that is? Elves uh, harmonizing. <laughs> like, <laughs> And then the driver like says he'll do it for a 50 or something. And Bateman is muttering, the city sucks. As yeah. he like hands him money. <laughs> yeah. And then also just just the chapter where um he's on like uh, like multiple line calls with his friends and the women he's having yes. affairs with trying to figure out reservations that chapter is like such a perfect example of how excellent Brett Easton Ellis is at writing comedy yes um, because rules of attraction is very funny too it, it's hilarious mm-hmm. and he he just he nails it Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he's so good at writing comedy because that chapter it's got like pacing and mm-hmm. it, it it feels exciting. It's so good. Yeah, it's a it's a chapter in the in the latter section of the book. It's called Another Night, and yeah, it's it's in like it's five or six pages of just Bateman on the phone with Craig McDermott and like a couple of his other friends trying to go to a restaurant just for just the three of them, and then they get their <laughs> wives involved and other people, and he was like gonna meet Courtney somewhere. And then but then he was like, oh, I'm going to meet Evelyn here. And then they got the restaurants wrong. And it's just this whole (laughs) like chaotic, like so like uncut gems level of intense like just reading (laughs) and you're just so stressed out but it's hysterical because this is a problem that they encounter all of the time you know like (laughs) oh we can't go to this place like i don't like the waiter here i can't go to this place you know that no one hangs out there anymore you know it's just like this is what these people think about and like spend their time and it's it's just uh i i don't know i'm having trouble sometimes forming words just because of like how like intense the experience was like mm-hmm. I, I was just I was really really uh, enjoying myself reading this book oh that makes me happy yeah <laughs> um I want to talk about the violence uh because I think it's a big part of the book and another reason why it uh you know obviously garnered a fair amount of controversy oh, yeah. um because uh you know obviously it being a uh a, a book about a, a serial killer and I think we've we've talked about violence in uh not only in film but in literature uh, a little bit but maybe a little bit with um with fight club but you know there's very graphic depictions of the uh the murders that he inflicts on the women that he picks up throughout the book i think it's one of the biggest reasons why obviously it was you know it, i read uh in in the u.s the book was named the 53rd most banned and challenged book from 1990 to 1999 um by the american library association so it's always on lists of you know most banned books or most challenged books and obviously you know there's whole other um you know feminist reading of how the book you know is problematic because of the violence towards women and you know the violence is you know extremely like visceral like it definitely hits you yeah and it's one thing like when we were i remember we were talking about fight club we also mentioned chuck uh palinuk's book or his um, short story guts yeah and how that was something where it felt as though someone was just writing it because it's like, this is the grossest thing that I can think of. So I'm just going to write something gross. Mm-hmm. And, but this to me was so visceral. Like, I don't, I don't want to say, I, I don't want to be that person who's just like, you know, oh, but they don't get it. Like it means something, you know, but like <laughs> it fits in a weird way because oh, yeah. of how like you're almost like unexpected, like you're not expecting it to be that this, like I had known going into it, there was some crazy shit, 
But even like the first kill of the homeless guy, I was just like, yeah, it's tough, which doesn't oh happen God. until like 130 pages in, which I think is interesting. I, I wouldn't even say the book is like completely inundated with mm-hmm. violence. Yeah. Um, it The frequency picks up towards the end of the book, which I think is a smart Mm-hmm. pacing choice but yeah. i i totally agree when you say it feels like it's you know uh relevant or necessary mm-hmm. because i think how over the top the violence is it fits completely perfectly with the depiction of this excessive decadent mm-hmm. uh capitalist materialistic consumerist society mm-hmm. that bateman is living in um and again that kind of like commentary on the 80s reagan era um, like I, I think just how how over the top and extreme the violence is, like mm-hmm. it, it works. It it kind of drives home the point. Yeah, yeah, and the fact that you know this man is has this animalistic nature to him, and I I, I agree. I love the fact that it doesn't happen until 130 pages in because the whole time you're like, well, it's like w- what's going to be the driving factor of the story, you mm-hmm. know, and. Most of the time, or for those first 130 pages, you know, you're figuring out his relationships with some of these people, like Evelyn and his friends. Like uh, Timothy uh, Bryce is very prevalent in the first like 100 pages of the book, and uh, you're just trying to figure out, like, okay, what what else is going to be? What, what what's the next step? And the next step is like turning it up to 11. Mm-hmm. You know, when he kills that homeless man, you're just like, oh my god it's like so I was, brutal it is incredibly brutal and, and hard to read at points but and it also adds to the you know this idea of the fantasy like so much of this is based on you know the the fantasy of what these you know young men want of this is the life i want this is the job i want this is the amount of money i want this is the like home and girlfriend and like all of that and then you know his lust for murder is on the same level yeah. of everything else. You know, it's not tampered down. But also, again, it also again adds to the question of like because it's so excessive and ridiculous and horrible, you kind of question like, is he really doing this, or is he just thinking about this when he's doing crunches and watching Body Double for the thirtieth time? <laughs> you know, you're, just, yeah. you're not really sure, and but like it doesn't make it any less effective. You know, it it makes it would argue even more effective that you're not sure. So I, it, it just adds to the experience in that. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing too, that a lot of the murders, it's so extreme and terrible that it's almost like there's no way he was doing this in his apartment with it going unnoticed. Um, And, you know, there's kind of a a chapter that I'm sure we'll talk about where he goes to a Paul Owen's apartment after doing horrible, horrible murders there. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's completely cleaned up and um, being sold. Yep. Uh, and so we'll talk about that, I'm sure. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it like th- all the violence is so graphic and extreme that sometimes it does toe the line into just being absurd mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. does add to, like you said, the dream like, is this even happening? Because this is just so like brutal. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and obviously horrible horrible shit happens in real life horrible graphic murders have happened in history um but but reading the depictions of the violence compounded with patrick bateman talking about 
how he saw an interview with Bigfoot on the fictional <laughs> Patty Winters show. Oh my god! Or, uh, and he found him charming and articulate. <laughs> uh, or an interview with a, ch- a Cheerio in a very small chair. Like, like we, re- you really get the sense that Bateman is not a reliable narrator. Mm-mm. And so, like, obviously, no and way. So it's just like, or him being followed by a park bench for seven blocks. <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, reading stuff like that and then the, the violence, um, mm-hmm. it, it does bring the question of, okay, you know, did he kill somebody? But it, it wasn't as, it wasn't like this. Like, is mm-hmm. this a complete daydream? Is it a hallucination? Yeah. Um, so it, it so the, so the, the extreme over the top descriptions, like, like it, it works, like you said, and it does uh, on some degree feel necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And obviously, you know, violence towards women is an ongoing, you know, question in media and just society in general. But just talking about like this, you know, one, this, this work, it, you know, I I don't know. I I agree with everything that you're saying. I just think that it accentuates like this idea of reality and perception. And, Mm -hmm. but you brought up the Patty Winter show. That was honestly my favorite (laughs) thing. Great running gag. Constantly trying to figure out like what that segment was like the, yeah, the, the talking Cheerio was probably my favorite <laughs> one because I was just like, "What does that mean? Or like, what is going on?" Like, <laughs> or when Bateman says that on the Patty Winters show, a, a Nazi came on and juggled, and he was so Bateman was so delighted, he sat up in bed and applauded. Yeah, like it's just it's so funny. I, I think there was another one that was like UFOs that kill. <laughs> oh, a, a new a new sport called dwarf tossing. Yeah. Well, that's just, a real thing. Well, right, but just the fact that it's phrased that way yeah. is is hysterical. Like, oh, a new sport called dwarf tossing. And, and again, his his descriptions of what he watches on the Patty Winters show get more insane as the book goes on. Like, it starts mm-hmm. out very straightforward at first. Yeah, mm-hmm. like oh, it was on the opiate crisis or whatever, or like or or crack or whatever. But uh, then by the end, it's interviews with Cheerios sitting in tiny chairs. Yeah, and big. Mm-hmm foot yeah he, he definitely goes off the rails you know towards <laughs> the end for sure and we can talk about whether there actually is a, a change in his character um a little bit later because there's a lot to talk about with the ending sure um Let, can we take a second to acknowledge how wonderful Brady sinellis is at writing dialogue between oh, like yeah. groups oh yeah like uh-huh. it's just so fun to read mm-hmm. and, and that's something that is present in you know all of the novels that i've read by him um, mm-hmm. just how fun it is to read these people talking to each other, even if you don't give a shit what they're talking about yeah. or you're disgusted by them. Mm-hmm. Um, because Patrick and his friends talk about at best completely pointless, vapid stuff. And yeah, it's uh, like, at it's worst, like nothing. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and then at worst, just horrible, demeaning, degrading comments about women and, mm-hmm. Of homeless people just yeah. horrible yeah the running gag of like them like almost giving a homeless person a dollar and then like taking it away yeah they're so cruel and they're terrible awful. like yeah. they're all and, awful yeah incredibly racist like um, many uses of the n-word like hard oh, yeah. r n-word is just like oh my god but Very i agree ugly. that like it's fun to hear how like uh like everyone has a different voice and you can easily like, I think tell like the difference between certain characters. Yeah. Like, uh, like Lewis Carruthers is a dope. 
Like, you know, like, <laughs> that, that's not just something that someone else says. Like, even in, in the movie, you know, Bateman's like the biggest doofus in the business. And he kind of is. Like, the way that he presents himself in conversation. Or Timothy Bryce is just so, like has so much aggression and there's everything. something very interesting done with his character in the book he's he's very intense and at one mm-hmm. there's that scene of him at the club kind of staring at the train tracks and mm-hmm. yelling at the train tracks and then i think he goes to like rehab um yeah. and then of course at the end of both the novel and the film he's the only one kind of paying attention to reagan on television yeah and, you know making comments of just like how could he lie like that mm-hmm. so I, I think there's some interesting things done with that character um but yeah you know bateman or bateman <laughs> Brady Stinellis, uh, like you said, is able to kind of make all these distinctive voices, um, which is impressive because all these people are basically the same person. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, which which is true in universe too. everyone is always mistaking each other for different people mm-hmm. because they're either not paying attention enough or because everybody conforms so perfectly uh, yeah. or a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. McDermott was my personal favorite of the side characters. <laughs> I think he, the way that he makes everything personal, but yeah. takes everything personally, like is a very interesting <laughs> dichotomy of how he'll hone in on something to make fun of Patrick, you know, like calling him gay or you're like, oh, you're going to give that guy a blowjob or something like that. And then when Patrick says that thing about the pizza at that one restaurant, he takes it so personally. Like, I can't believe you would say something like that. And that hypocrisy is so like McDermott is a child. Like, that's what makes is so funny. Like, he's like a, a middle school bully, essentially, in that like mindset. And it was so funny to like read some. I mean, there's the classic, you know, when he's making fun of, you know, Bateman for like you know being Jewish and or like you know he's like or, okay, or Paul he's, Allen yeah yeah Paul Allen for being Jewish and he's like oh okay, okay some potato pancakes some latkes you know and he's <laughs> just so and obviously the great like line of like hey just cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks you know like, it's <laughs> a beautiful beautiful exchange um, yeah but yeah I loved uh, whenever Craig McDermott showed up I was like all right this is gonna be this is gonna be good. <laughs> Okay, before we bring the movie into our conversation, let's take a quick break to hear a word from today's sponsor. Let's be honest, folks. We've all turned to the fridge when we're in desperate need for home decor inspiration. How many households have you been in with a bowl of fruit painting on the wall? It's a worldwide phenomenon, and it's heartbreaking when you realize your favorite fungal ingredient just doesn't liven up your living room as you thought it would. But have no fear. Even though the mushrooms in your fridge don't have much personality, you can add some cheeky, curvaceous toadstools to your walls. Introducing Tushrooms. Former film guest Lexi Cutmore has put her artistry out into the world and let me just say, it's one of a kind. With the cap of a mushroom and body of a female figure, mushroom ladies come in a variety of customizable colors, shapes, and sizes. The drawings are a unique way to add some personalized color to your home. Plus, who isn't all about body positivity at this point? Get with the times, people. To order your tush rooms, visit Underground Art Project on Etsy.com. That's Underground Art Project on Etsy.com. That's U-N-D-G-N-D-A-R-T-P-R-O-J. Customize your fungus female today. So the, the film was adapted um, in the year 2000 uh, by a director named Mary Heron, and she co-wrote the screenplay with uh, Guinevere Turner, who, who also 
plays Elizabeth in the yep. film. She plays Elizabeth, a Guinevere Turner, um, very I- iconic. She was uh, one of the writers of the first two seasons of The L Word. Uh, uh, one as, of your favorites. One yeah. of one of my favorites, uh, mm-hmm. as well as playing Alice's uh, psycho ex-girlfriend, Gabby. Uh, on the L word, and then the show got remarkably more terrible when Guinevere Turner—that's uh, her name, right? Did mm-hmm. I screw yep. that up? Yeah. Yep. Uh, when she left, the show got remarkably worse uh, because Guinevere Turner is just such a great writer. Yeah, and so she makes an appearance in the movie mm-hmm. with the very uh, ironic, you know, comment of "I'm not a lesbian." She's a lesbian in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I-, I love her. She's awesome. So they co-wrote the screenplay together. It uh, stars Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto. George Lucas, or sorry, not George Lucas, Josh Lucas, <laughs> Samantha Mathis, uh, Chloe Sevigny. Uh, just oh, love her. We'll, we'll get to. Don't you worry. We're going to get to her. <laughs> uh, Justin Thoreau and uh, Reese Witherspoon. Also, again, Jared Leto making an appearance on the first and last episode of our series with Fight Club. Oh, uh, yeah. Both performances have aged, I think, pretty well for various reasons. Oh, um, yeah. And it, uh, it, was not super successful. It had a, a budget of seven million dollars, and you know its box office was thirty four point three million, which obviously had some return, but yeah. it was pretty unseen. And uh, eventually, just kind of went into cult status um, in the you know blockbuster like videotape DVD era of like word of mouth, and that's kind of how it started to gain um, some more notoriety. Uh, famously, had a direct to DVD sequel starring uh, Mila Kunis, which was not supposed to be a sequel it was just supposed to be this other horror movie called like the girl that wouldn't die or something yeah, and then, and they then just... Lionsgate was like well why don't we make it an American Psycho sequel mm-hmm. yeah great uh, decision yeah I don't know if we'll ever talk about that on the show but it's <laughs> worth noting when was the first time you saw the film I was probably like 14 probably around mm-hmm. the same age that I read it I, I can't I think I saw the film after reading the book mm-hmm. okay and it's one for me that it's always been fun to return to. Like I, I refer to it as kind of like the gift that keeps on giving. Like the more I watch it, the more entertained I am, the more like this most recent rewatch when it was over, it felt like it was the shortest. Like it just like flew it flies right by. by. Yeah, yeah. It does not feel its length. Yeah. And so I wanted as a big, you know, as a big fan of the book, having read it, you know, obviously more than I have. Uh, what do you, are you a big fan of the movie? Like, do you enjoy the film? I, I Oh yeah. I love the film. And, and I think, Definitely out of, uh, you know, what we've read on our list for sure. Um, and I think out of every film adaptation I've seen of, of novels or short stories, whatever, I think it it so perfectly captures the tone, the characters. I, I, I think it is a perfect adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it makes some choices with Jean's character and that kind of minor storyline that... Mm-hmm. Um, I think are is is interesting. Um, so it so it differs from the book, but I think it's still a perfect adaptation. It just so perfectly captures how dour the book feels and mm-hmm. how how mean spirited it is, but oh, still yeah. how funny <laughs> the yeah. movie is hilarious. Oh my god, yeah! There were so many new lines that jumped out to me that I was like <laughs> yeah. cackle at, which I'll Same. get to. Um, but yeah, I think it's. And I, I started this episode by saying it's one of the best. And I honestly do think it's one of the best adaptations because it it does it is a masterclass of streamlining. Like, yeah, in a, I was thinking in a that too. strange, like weird way. It n- manages to, you know, weave through all the stuff that like 
does that is kind of unfilmable. You know, yeah. you can't really <laughs> yeah. have the chapter of Bateman just rambling off all of the audio visual equipment that he got and then finds a rat and then uses that rat for various, uh, you know, murders. And, but it still has the visceral, like, uh, absurd violence in it, even though it wasn't as graphic as I remembered it being this last time. It wasn't as graphic as, yeah, I agree. It wasn't as graphic as I remembered it being, but I forgot how effective the very quick flashes of of gore are Mm -hmm. um, when Christie's running in the apartment, which, you know, in the book, she never, that doesn't happen. She doesn't make an escape. Um, But when she's running through Paul Allen's apartment, which Bateman is uh, using for his own Mm -hmm. (laughs) like murder apartment, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she, she enters like a dimly lit room and you just see like gore and, and body parts and blood and yeah. it's pretty creepy. And then, you yeah. know, she runs into the bathroom and there's just a bloodied corpse on the ground. Like, I, I think it is effective. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny because we were just talking about how much the extreme over the top depictions, uh, descriptions, um, of violence work in the book because it fits with the whole decadent extravagant uh, mm-hmm. overconsumption themes um but in the film you know the the violence is much more toned down yeah um but it still works and it still feels kind of over the top and mm-hmm. and all um not consuming but 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 ever present yeah um without well, being I, completely graphic yeah yeah well i think it, it the the film again going back to what i was saying about like streamlining is that like it keeps a lot of the, it keeps a lot of good, the good humor. It keeps a lot of the good, uh, like you know, character moments and relationships, and you get a good sense of like the coldness between that Patrick feels for Evelyn, and like just that not reciprocated feeling of yeah. uh, you know enjoyment. And yeah, there's there's no true friends or relationships between mm-hmm. like any of these people. No one cares no. about anyone but themselves. Yeah, but it does tone things down a little bit. And I don't mean mm-hmm. that in a negative way because I think it actually works for, again, the film language taking over because they, yeah. you do have to then construct this story as a three-act structure. Mm-hmm. And I think they do that really well of actually making Paul Allen's murder like within the first 30 minutes. And that feels as though it's something that hangs over the rest of the movie with Kimball's presence, uh, Detective Kimball, played by Willem Dafoe. And the the mystery of what is going on so that when the quote unquote like twist at the end, when more information is revealed, mm-hmm. then you yourself are actually really questioning because if on your first watch, when you're watching it, you do kind of just believe that he did all these things. Like yeah. it seems like it's actually happening because it's so uh, it fits within the world. Like the book is so over the top in all of its descriptions just because it has more of a, a blank canvas to work with as a, as a book, but the film, you know, it has to suck you in and be interesting and not that there aren't extravagant things there, but it really tricks you. It does a really good job of tricking you and making you think that uh, everything is happening. But by the end of it, you're like, oh, shit, this is kind of like a magic trick of a movie. I was not expecting. <laughs> and I, I have I've had my viewing and reading of the movie has changed drastically from the first time I I watched it. But it's just a it's such a great rewatch. Yeah, like, it's so it's such a like funny and entertaining and just crazy ride. 
yeah. to go uh, back to. Yeah, I really like that you pointed out that kind of taking Paul Owen Allen in the film, uh, his murder and making that almost kind of the like central plot, um, mm-hmm. or at least the backdrop of all this stuff, <laughs> to put it lightly, um, is very smart for, like you said, the film language and the three-act structure. Um, because in the in the book... I think Paul Allen's murder doesn't happen until like almost what, like halfway through the novel, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it's very quick and mm-hmm. um, not really um, harped on too much. Um, and then Kimball, you know, he's in the book, um, but we only get that interview uh, in Bateman's office in the book. Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, in the film, he, he goes to lunch with Kimball and there's more um, time with that character. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, so in the book, Paul Allen's murder—it's it, just kind of just another thing that happens. It, it mm-hmm. doesn't feel as huge as it does in the film. Yeah. Um, and and yeah, of course, we get more time with Paul Owen's character, like when Bateman goes to a U two concert with Paul oh Owen, Louis Carruthers, Courtney, and Evelyn, and, and Patrick Bateman gets an erection watching Bonos. <laughs> perform <laughs> oh my god wonderful chapter such an <laughs> such a funny chapter oh my god and then just after that just shitting on you two and just being like <laughs> i hate live music i don't know what that guy's singing about like he thinks his pants are too tight like i don't know what's going on like it's oh my god and just constant like they're in the front row and they're just talking about where to get drugs like after they're just like yeah the girls are bored let's go somewhere else like I, it's so funny it's an unbelievable uh yeah. chapter which just, just really wanted to bring that chapter up no please no it's good which actually it segues into this other you know big part of the book and just the story in general is the presence of pop culture oh and yeah i think it is a necessary part of the story mm-hmm. is how patrick bateman talks about um talks about pop culture and it's the way that he has these long monologues about these artists and i I mentioned like structurally how sometimes the book can be funny the first time he does this he does a a whole big deep dive of genesis and (laughs) and phil collins but what's amazing about that chapter is that two chapters before he's at like dinner with everyone and all of his friends. And he becomes this almost like woke warrior about like, <laughs> we have to, you know, we have to, we have to uh, end, apartheid, know, end and- apartheid. We have to make sure we have good, affordable health care, public schools, like all this stuff. Housing to, for the homeless. Housing for the homeless. All of these like, you know, really progressive views. And then the next chapter, he like brutally murders a homeless man. <laughs> And then the next chapter after that is just this glowing review of Genesis. That is so absurd on like a a multitude of levels that I can't even describe. It is genius. It's so funny. And the way that it carries into the film of, you know, starting with the perfect Huey Lewis scene. Like that scene is just, but I'll get into it in a second, but the, the fact that he just Patrick Bateman on a fundamental level does not understand pop culture and doesn't really know what pop culture or just like, you know, music or art or, you know, anything is for like, he's just, he's almost again, that animalistic, like just taking it as like, doing it before a murder like as if it's an appetizer to the just another thing to consume thoughtlessly consume and then it just 
constantly taking in this information and spitting it out just to show that you have it in your head as if, you know, it's like a painting on the wall that you're like, I have this in my possession, not because it's cool because of what it is, but it's cool that I have it. Yeah. And he hung it upside down. And he hung it upside down. (laughs) Oh my God. He's got a very expensive painting in the novel that, um, you know, a woman points out is hung upside down. Yes. Oh my God. Great little moment. And it's just like, I, I would love if I think it's hysterical if anyone walked away from this with like newfound thoughts of like Huey Lewis in the news or like <laughs> and I love Huey Lewis in the news, but like coming away being like, oh, yeah, he really knows what he's talking about. No, he doesn't. Yeah, he has he's just n- nothing. It's it is just like it's the most empty description of something that should bring you joy. And it's just not giving him anything again, adding to this psychological uh, nature of him. I I love those chapters and that uh, part of the story. And and it was really expertly adapted into the film um, because, you know, in in the chapters in the book, we just get eight page chapters Mm -hmm. of him just going on long diatribes about Whitney Houston, Huey Lewis in the news, Genesis, Mm -hmm. like it it goes on forever. And uh, I love that in the film, he kind of has those long rambling self (laughs) <laughs> like, he, like he's basically talking to himself mm-hmm. but uh it, it it happens when he brings prostitutes mm-hmm. he's he's just saying all this like stuff some of it pulled directly from the book i think yeah um uh-huh. pointless if you could even call it knowledge about music just yeah to, just rambling to prostitutes who don't care yeah don't you want to know what I do? <laughs> no, um, but I I love and and just watching him sit on the bed, just talking to himself about Whitney Houston, <laughs> while there's just two prostitutes behind him. Mm-hmm. Like it, it just it really perfectly shows. Again, he's a socially awkward weirdo. Yeah, who uh-huh. can't connect with anyone, can't connect with music. Just yeah, just it's he so can't good. No enjoyment in anything, or just like. And again, like it's also funny, like having in the in the book, his favorite movie, the body double, which is this (laughs) Brian De Palma movie that I actually just recently watched for the first time. Well, that's good. It probably adds some context. I haven't seen it. Oh, it it does. It definitely does. (laughs) And, you know, there's this famous scene in the film with uh, with a with a giant drill. And he says that in the book that that's his favorite part. He masturbates over it. Yeah. And, And he's like. It's funny because he's like in the book, he's like in line at the video store and he's like telling this to the the best part, though, is like when he's like, he's like, uh, oh, there's there's three other people in this video store so they could see me rent like some porno. It's like Savage Cunt or something like that is the title. And he's like, oh, they could see me rent that again for the third time. It's like, who the fuck thinks like this? I love at one point he's like, I, pre- I, I pretend not to notice the clerk's horrified expression as he sees that it's me renting body double for this 37 time yeah it's so funny and trying to make conversation like you know <laughs> oh i i i love the scene where where he kills the girl with the drill and he's, they're, they're just like uh-huh yeah, yeah sure but like he just does not know yeah and so it uh, to go back to the film i want to i the the huey lewis scene is is a perfect movie scene i think mm-hmm. it is just so well done i mean it also has some sentimental value because you know fun story i, I don't know if you know this but um we on our last semester at Broom, uh, some founding members of Orion Valley Productions, we made uh, a recreation of the 
Huey Lewis in the news scene from American Psycho for one of our video projects. Oh, of course, uh, I remember and, you. Yeah. You showed it to me. Okay, good, good, yeah, good. Yeah, great stuff. Um, and it's uh, so I and I got to play Patrick Bateman in that <laughs> and just like you know wear a suit and like just we I got to chop Austin Burchard up with a fake <laughs> Nerf axe and it was just ridiculous. A nerf axe. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is uh, an incredible scene. It's like you know three minutes long and you know just him starting off with you like Huey Lewis in the news and uh <laughs> when he does that like little backwards walk where he's like he's been compared to Elvis Costello like it's yeah. just so funny his energy and how chipper he is right before like he's just putting Paul Allen in the center of the room to like just chop him up which is if just I, insane if I remember correctly I think Brett Easton Ellis maybe he feels differently now but I think in the past he had some issue with that scene specifically and he felt like um, Christian Bale played Bateman as too dorky. And it's like, <laughs> dude, did you like read the book that you wrote? Like, yeah. <laughs> Bateman is a huge dork freak. Yeah. Like there's a part in the book where he's like, <laughs> it's Christmas time and there's like some kind of just carolers or band in the street performing Christmas songs and he tap dances in front of them while moaning. Like you wrote a weirdo freak. Like I, I think Christian Bale like nailed it. And I think it's a perfect characterization. Yeah. Um, the little I, dances and, and movements and mm-hmm. like, yeah. I think it's totally perfect. And I think it's, it's on par with something that uh, the novel Patrick Bateman would do. Uh, and it sounded to me like maybe Brady Stanellis was a little jealous that the script that he wrote got passed over. That's true. That's very important to note that there were three other drafts of uh-huh. the script. And they I think this was like the second one. And they landed on this one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he wrote, I think, like maybe the first draft or something. Uh, but this screenplay is just oh, it's terrific. perfect. It is a perfect screenplay. Again, with the streamlining of taking, um, you know, specific conversations that happen in the book and kind of meshing them one into the into one scene like in the opening like when they're at whatever i can't remember what the restaurant is or whatever when it's the four of them and Mm -hmm. uh i think they're at evelyn's apartment or do you mean the opening of the film opening of the film ah um and they're uh you know saying like oh there's that person like oh no that's not paul allen paul (laughs) allen's over there and you know the great you know uh cool with the anti-semitic joke (laughs) which i've seen as you know in my uh it's popped up in meme form. There's a lot of good memes from this movie. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, my, my favorite line in this scene is uh, then Patton comes back and he sits down and he goes, they don't have a good bathroom to do Coke in. I can't remember if it's lifted from the book. It, it is, is straight from the book. It is from the book. Yeah. And it's, oh my God. What, it's such like, a, is that a gram? Yes. The, yeah. uh, are, you, are, are you freebasing? That's not Paul Allen. <laughs> I love, I forgot that in the film, um, they include the scene where uh, Bateman and I, and I think it's uh, Bryce, uh, Timothy Bryce or Price, I can't remember his name, um, are, are trying to do coke in a bathroom at a club, but it's sweet and low. Yes. I forgot that that was in the film and I'm Me so too. glad it was because it's so funny. Yes. That's one. That was a line that stood out to me that I totally forgot about. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, that's not, uh, that's not Coke. That's sweetener. And Bateman goes, <laughs> Bateman's like, oh, well, it's it's weak, but I bet if we do enough of it, we'll be okay. Yeah, we'll be okay. <laughs> and then uh, the guy in the next stall, can you keep it down? I'm trying to do drugs in here. <laughs> oh, fuck you. <laughs> so funny. Justin Thoreau plays a terrific asshole. He's great. Yeah. yeah. I, I forgot how great he is. And he's not on screen too much, but Mm-mm. when he is, it's so, he's so funny. Yeah. Oh, that is genius. How to knit like how to knit wit like you get so tasteful. 
Oh my god, the business card scene. Can we talk about the business card scene, please? Oh my god, this is like it's one of those things where it adds to the uh, like it's in a business room, which is another thing that I like never really clicked in with. Like, none of these people are working. Like they're they have (laughs) jobs, but they don't do anything. Yeah, well, well, Patrick Bateman canonically, you know, he he, it's his father's basically his father's company. Yeah, so he uh got the job just totally through nepotism. And, right. and really it doesn't do anything all day yeah um and like no one does they just go to lunch with each other yeah that's all their meetings are like oh you have a 10 30 you know lunch with this person oh we <laughs> usually box at the harvard club like oh cancel it i have lunch with someone else and <laughs> he just turns the tv on and starts watching jeopardy yeah that's all and he does or he's like reading a book or doing the crossword or listening to music like he's and, not and when they're in that business and they're in that meeting room no one is just like looking <laughs> at a blank wall as lewis carruthers like talks about his suit like they're not doing anything it's so wild your compliment was sufficient lewis um but uh yeah and you know and in white brad easton ellis talks about how in in doing research which he ended up referring to as just completely useless Mm -hmm. um for american psycho by hanging out with these wall street guys he could never exactly get a straight answer on what they did all day Mm -hmm. or what exactly they did for work and instead it was just them talking about lunches and clothes and mm-hmm. and he he just could not ever get a straight answer on what anybody actually did for a job yeah. um, which i think is so funny it's very funny um, yeah and it, it seems that he implies that that's another reason it, it kind of came to him to make patrick bateman a serial killer um and it's just great stuff yeah i love it and it, again it kind of adds to the uh like obscure nature of the story where you're it, it automatically feels off, you know, like if this was like a movie that was going into like at least this like a side of the deeper side, like um, procedural side of Wall Street, like an investment firm, it wouldn't be as interesting. You know, it yeah. would it would be uh, yeah. it, it would kind of feel like, you know, if it was trying to say something else, but it doesn't fully connect. Like it's good that you just kind of feel off where it's just like they just walked into this conference room and they're not talking about anything. Like <laughs> uh, they just automatically start, you know, talking about, you know, their business card, which again is like just incredible the way like everyone's just like, oh, very nice. You know, and, like and Christian Bale just looks looks insane. Yeah. Like he is so amazing in this movie i'm sure we'll talk about it more but yeah he looks crazy just like always in a cold sweat and the business card scene is just like a perfect example yeah while he looks at paul allen's business card yeah well like when he like holds it out and the sound design goes like <laughs> like this like oh my god, oh my like, god. like it's like it's like the the briefcase in pulp fiction you know like it's that <laughs> moment of like oh my god i can't believe i'm looking inside and and yeah this the cold sweat his face is like glistening and just this look of just absolute disdain (laughs) and defeat and just like cynicism for the world which is great because again there's so much in the book about how clearly cynical like patrick's views of this world are particularly later in the like the latter half when he's like really spiraling down and like he's talking to gene like when they're at lunch and she tries to say something important to him and he just like goes off that's such a great chapter it's an amazing chapter and and that like in that moment like bale just does that whole thing with his face like 30 seconds ago he was like feeling happy and proud of himself you know he like put (laughs) his card down he's like yeah picked him up in the printers you know 
Oh yeah, that's a uh, that's bone. Lettering is something called Cillian Rail. What the fuck does that mean? Like, what <laughs> what is that? And the fact that they're all you know vice presidents and they have the same job and it's the same just basic look. And all, the, that, all the business cards basically look the same. Like, yeah. it's so funny. And it's yeah. I, but you you mentioned Bale. Let's talk about Bale. He's a fascinating actor. Like just generally, mm-hmm. his career has had so many like interesting points, and you know, obviously, probably being most well known in the public eye is playing Batman and the Christopher Nolan trilogy. Mm-hmm. But this is like I don't even know how to describe this performance. Like it's it is so on another level of putting in. He's so good at like putting on the fake persona and then dialing it up to 11 to when necessary like when he needs to run down the hallway with the chainsaw but then <laughs> with he running shoes on yeah but then he's also like able to you know put the emotion into it that feels hammy but necessarily hammy like when he's on the phone talking to his lawyer like after the police chase oh thing. yeah the, yeah it's great the, the range of emotion but he he's so committed there's a great quote i think from uh from roger ebert about his performance um, that sa- it says, so Roger Ebert said, uh, Bale is heroic in the way he allows the character to leap joyfully into despicability. There's no instinct for self-preservation here. And that is one mark of a good actor. Like that's such a perfect way to put it because Bale is like giving himself completely over to the idea of like, you know, this is the most hated character that I've played up until this point. You know, mm-hmm. he was in, you know, Empire of the Sun as a child actor and like a teen heartthrob and newsies, like a very well-liked, like charismatic actor. But he's playing, again, just a despicable human being. But there's something about him that you just like are kind of infatuated with. Like you don't like like him, but you kind of do. Like, I don't know. Like it's like, <laughs> like there's just parts of you that you're like, I want to know what this guy's going to say. Like, what's he going to do next? Well, like, what's- it, it, it's interesting. Cause you know, um, again, in, in white, um, in one of the essays, Brady Stanellis talks about how he was ultimately trying to detect, uh, depict Bateman at times as sympathetic where you, mm-hmm. you could almost feel for him as a distraught person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's it's Christian Bale's performance that does kind of almost bring that. I, I mean, I, very hard character to have any sympathy for. Oh yeah. But um, Bateman or Bale uh, perfectly really shows that, like, just someone completely losing their shit and just insane. And mm-hmm. it's just because he's such a phenomenal actor. Like, it's just such a great performance. Um, yeah. And do you know? You know? Did. I don't know if you've seen any interviews or anything. Um, did he read the book, Christian I'm Bale? I'm not sure, actually. I, I wonder if he read the book in preparation. I'd kind of hope he did. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd almost assume he did because, like, the way that he plays the character, it feels so much like Bateman in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, well, again, but- I, I think Brett Easton Ellis was being very precious when he was like, I think it was a dorkier performance. It's like, dude. Yeah. A character who cries over talking about diet coke versus diet pepsi yeah mm-hmm. like like stop it yeah <laughs> i i'm not sure i do know that what's really kind of funny and ironic is that uh there was a i don't remember what movie it was for but at one point um bale met tom cruise backstage at the david letterman show <laughs> and had realized that he had got the inspir or got an inspiration from tom cruise because of this like overwhelming 
positive energy that Tom Cruise exudes, but with lifeless, like empty eyes, like with nothing behind it. Yeah, and Bale I was like, that's him. And it's I, hilarious because like arguably the funniest chapter in the book is the Tom Cruise <laughs> chapter when he's in the elevator again, with just, Tom e- Cruise. just accentuating the idea that Patrick Bateman just does not know how to interact with human beings. Like just being <laughs> yeah. like, do you like living in the building? You know, yeah, he <laughs> like, totally, totally weirds out Tom Cruise, which by the way, uh, fictitious address that Bateman lives in mm-hmm. um which American is, Gardens building yeah, yeah a, a fictitious location in New York City um so it's another we'll talk about that later I'm sure mm-hmm. yeah. uh, when we get to analysis yeah um, um but yeah I recently saw clips from that David Letterman or maybe it wasn't the David Letterman interview I saw clips from some interview that Tom Cruise did um, around the same time that Christian Bale, um, you know, said that he got that inspiration, and it's just totally obvious. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, he, it, he talks the, like Patrick Bateman, Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh-huh. I picture like the like the the Tom Cruise like over the top laugh with like the big teeth and like the oh <laughs> god, it's just it's just crazy. But with the, one of the other thing that Bale does really well, or I think most of the actors do, is that while the dialogue in the book is just like obviously objectively like very well written and very funny. Sometimes their delivery makes it even funnier. Oh like, my god, especially like, with Christian Bale. Yeah. Oh yeah, like my favorite two of the two lines that jumped out to me in his delivery that were just perfect. I I think one of them may be from the book, but I know the other one isn't. Is when I think Kimball visits him the second time in the <laughs> office, and he goes, uh, "When was the last time you saw Paul Allen?" And Bale goes, "We uh we saw a new musical called Oh Africa." Brave Africa is a laugh riot. (laughs) (laughs) How deadpan he says that. Monotone. With his, like, again, just glistening face, like sweaty. (laughs) Just like, yeah, it was a laugh riot. Like, just, he's like, it almost looks like he's like just clearly just making that name up off the top of his head. Also, at one point, he says he has to meet Cliff Huxtable (laughs) for lunch. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But another line that I really love, I don't think it's in the book, but it's when uh, Gene is over in his apartment and, you know, and he grabs the the nail gun. But before then, he goes into his, um, into like the closet there. He's holding duct tape for some reason. <laughs> she goes, well, what is that? He goes, duct tape. I need it for taping something. <laughs> and then also another great, uh, I think, comedic read um, when he's breaking up with Evelyn and she's like, you're inhuman. And he goes, no, I, I'm in touch with humanity. <laughs> great, great, great yeah. line, which um, may or may not have been lifted from the book. I can't mm-hmm. remember. Or it's very similar to uh, what was actually said in the book. Yeah, but- I do. I do also just love the constant. Uh, I think like three times it's said when he's like, "I have to return some videotape." <laughs> like that's a great running like idea throughout the the story, and again the delivery of him like after Lewis Carruthers like makes a move on him, and he's just like kind of processing that. And he's just like, "I have to return some videotapes." Like he's just so <laughs> bewildered, and he just runs out of the bathroom. Like he's so so insane. But I, staying on the performance track, I think every performance in the movie. Is is top notch. I love all of his friends. Like, like I said, Justin Thoreau, you know, we'll definitely be doing Mulholland drive on the show at one point to kind of carry (laughs) that discussion over. Um, his just perfect way of playing a 
snooty, like punchable asshole. This sucks. <laughs> um, Josh Lucas as Craig McDermott is fantastic. He's just also great at this like bulky kind of a jock type character. And I, I, I can't remember the name of the actor who plays Van Patten, but I love his look like with the glasses and yeah. the like kind of um, square hair. And again, the, yeah, but they don't, uh, they don't have enough a good bathroom to do coke in. Bill yeah. Sage plays David Van Patten. Uh, none of um, them look twenty seven. No. I, I almost uh-uh. wish they would have aged them up a little bit. I, like I understand the point of Patrick Bateman being twenty seven because that's just so young to be stupidly successful and wealthy and it just. Yeah. But um, yeah, that, that's my one little gripe. Like in the movie and who, who knows, maybe, you know, it, it works because it adds that kind of surreal quality, I guess could be argued, but none of them look 27. Oh no, uh, uh-uh, not at all. Um, one of the things that I was really keying in on while I was reading the book mm-hmm. was Patrick's relationship with Jean. Jean is his um, secretary who he constantly mentions like Jean, <laughs> who's definitely in love with me. Like <laughs> yeah, always says, love- like, says that every time she shows up, like Jean, my secretary who is in love with me. Yeah. is is really great. At, at one point too, he's like Jean, my secretary, who I will probably end up marrying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they they do something really interesting with her character. And again, maybe we could talk about it, like about Patrick's character arc or, you know, supposed character arc in the story of her position towards the end and how they're at lunch. And he has this kind of thought of like, in oh. In the novel. Yeah, right? in the novel. Okay. Um, like this thought of, oh, maybe am I having feelings, the right feelings for this person? Like, is this something new? Like, is something's going on inside me? Um, and, you know, the, the character takes a different path in the film, and we can talk about that difference, but I really like Chloe Sevigny um, as the character. I honestly thought she did a really good job. She brings this presence of uh, clearly being infatuated with Patrick, even though he s- says just awful things to her. <laughs> like, don't wear that outfit, you know? Like, just so, so strange. But I really like her like chemistry and like the feelings um, with Bale, especially when he's at or when she's at his apartment mm-hmm. and is describing like, you know, are you happy? Like, what do you want to do with your life? Like, what, what's going on there? And that's, again, another good testament to the screenplay and Mary Heron's direction of making that moment a moment where you think another murder is going to happen, but then switching it once the phone rings and Patrick doesn't go through with it because he says, you know, I think something bad might happen. I don't know. Yeah, I per- I personally really liked her performance. Yeah, we we don't... That kind of tension between uh, Jean and Patrick's character doesn't happen in the book. I, mm-hmm. I think Jean throughout the novel feels very safe. Yeah. Um, I don't think you ever really get the feeling that she's going to get murdered by him um, because in the novel we don't get, you know, that I- iconic image of <laughs> Bateman with the nail gun mm-hmm. uh, to the back of Jean's head. And that whole uh, I don't want to hurt you conversation, interestingly enough, happens in the novel between Bateman and a model. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I really love that chapter where, you know, him and his friends are hanging out with the model and her friends and they're ta- the models are talking about fur. Yeah, and uh-huh. um, <laughs> clothes, and and it's it's almost beat for beat a conversation that Patrick would have with his friends, but him and his friends are like, look at these dumb sluts talking yeah, about uh-huh. shit that doesn't matter. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but then Patrick goes home with the model and doesn't kill her. Uh, yeah, and mm-hmm. and she is is free to not be killed. Um, but you know, in the movie, that same kind of character, uh, that model, it's implied that she is a murder victim. And so instead we get that, uh, little dialogue of something bad might happen if you stay 
between uh, Patrick and Jean. But um, in the novel, nothing like that happens. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting because, you know, in the novel, Jean and Patrick have that kind of close encounter I guess of just you know, like you said at the end when they're having lunch and Jean tells him she's in love with him mm-hmm. um, whereas that doesn't necessarily happen in the film <laughs> it's clear that she has a crush on him and everything but it's Patrick kind of grappling with whether or not to kill her rather than uh, in the novel when we get that iconic I simply am not there monologue mm-hmm. in the chapter where they're having lunch like right after when she tells him she's in love with him which I think is like a really great fitting spot to have that kind of um, introspection from Bateman's character because he's like you know Gene is in love with the idea of Patrick Bateman yeah uh-huh. like, but I'm simply am not there uh, and I still think the monologue works in the movie kind of putting it over the getting the morning routine. Mm, I love um, the morning routine. Yeah. <laughs> great, great stuff. Play an herb mint facial mask. <laughs> <laughs> I always love, I put on an ice pack while doing my stomach crunches. I, I can do a thousand, thousand now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so weird. But yeah, in the film, we see something interesting with Jean's character kind of, and nothing like this happens in the novel, finding Patrick's little murder notebook yeah uh-huh uh which which i which i think is in, and getting and being clearly upset and horrified mm-hmm. um yeah what, what do you what do you want to start what do you think of that like direction? Uh, yeah i think that's definitely one of the biggest things that i'm a bit a, a bit more confused about than i am like having concrete answers for because i think that that is the one thing where i'm like trying to figure out how that fits in with the actual like the rest of the, like the idea of the movie and that like the thesis, what does that lead to? Does that mean, okay, she knows so she's going to out him. Does this mean that like, Oh, she just has to live with this. Like, I'm not really sure what that point of it, like that revelation is really trying to say. And maybe that's just my own ignorance. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's like a big flaw. It's just kind of one question I had at the end. I was like, Oh, I kind of, I honestly forgot that she found that. Cause when I think of the ending, I think of that monologue in the zoom in like, great dolly in shot but i had forgotten about that added like extra thing that like is it the idea that like okay gene well then we know that the fantasies that he's having like that's the only link that's the only real link because everything else has kind of been like wiped away Mm -hmm. so it's clear that he's been having these thoughts and that he is this murderous personality but that doesn't really give any real answer to whether he did it or didn't do it which i think is fine but I, I guess I'm just not really sure what the implication of that really is in connection to the rest of the film. Yeah, it's interesting. And and, it, and it's very different from the novel because, you know, in the novel, I think there's with Jean's character, it's kind of the constant idea that she does not see Patrick for what he really is. You know, right, there, yeah. there's an idea mm-hmm. of Patrick Bateman and you can shake my hand, all that stuff. Um, so in the film, you know, I think that moment is supposed to be Jean getting a a glimpse of who Patrick really is mm-hmm. and being horrified. And so I don't know. I kind of wonder if there's supposed to be sort of a cliffhanger of, is she just going to kind of ignore it and move on? Because in this society, people don't want to think too much about anything a other than themselves and be um, inconvenient to the, the pretty narrative that they have of their lives they don't want to think about anything like dark and ugly mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it's interesting and, and like you said i don't think it's a flaw i don't think it's bad it's just the one thing that kind of sticks out among the rest yeah. of the 
among the rest of the ending. Like it, it, it'd be one thing if it was like if there was like one more image of like let's so she's looking through the book. And then maybe she just like either puts it away and then goes back to her desk to continue doing her job or something like that. There's more of a kind of resolution to that idea, but there's just kind of the introduction to this implication. Yeah. And there isn't really a clear ending to the actual thought, which again is not like, it's not like a plot hole. It's not like a, like, why didn't they like tie that up? Like, I think that's, that's (laughs) fine. Adding to the idea of like, okay, well, what does this actually mean? Yeah. I'm just more confused than I am. Like I have concrete answers for that aspect. specifically. And I wonder if it's supposed to kind of parallel to, because during that same scene, we're kind of, it cuts back and forth between, you know, Gene and Patrick's office scene has, murder notebook um Uh and then bateman talking to his lawyer Mm -hmm. who great performance by whoever played the lawyer i love that scene (laughs) yes Um, yeah but his his lawyer you you can't tell if the lawyer is like okay i get it i hear you but i'm going to ignore you Mm -hmm. and pretend like that did not happen so just move on or if he really doesn't believe patrick Mm mm-hmm like you can't really tell yeah. so so i kind of wonder if that whole thing with gene seeing the notebook is supposed to kind of like play off of of the lawyer being told to his face by bateman a confession mm-hmm. um i killed paul allen i killed all those women like yeah. i did all of that uh and the lawyer choosing to move on yeah and, and walking away and then just continuing to have like conversations and drinks with his colleagues um so i, I wonder if it's supposed to be kind of the same thing with Jean. Like Jean is now also seeing the closest thing to, of like what Bateman really is. Mm-hmm. And so will she move on like the lawyer or will she, but, but like you said, it almost like you kind of wish there might've been, you know, a shot of her going back to work or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. It, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. It's just definitely worth discussing. Um, since we are on the topic of the ending, I think we should like talk about the, the quote unquote, I, I hesitate to call it a twist, but like, you know, the kind of shift that happens in the third act of the story, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, of the film, because a lot happens in the last 20 minutes of this movie. You know, he's at the ATM and it's a stray cat, like, which is great. And then he kills the old lady and then the cop shootout happens and you know he like makes the cars explode and (laughs) calls the lawyer and then he like freaks out at gene on the phone like he's running all over the place and just going crazy and everything's crumbling around and in the book that same huge police shootout chase scene happens Mm -hmm. um and it switches to a third person narrative like mid-sentence which i think is so fun yeah Keep, hold that thought because I, I want to bring that back in analysis. <laughs> but yeah, and he tries to go back to Paul Allen's apartment and it's been, you know, like almost clean, gutted and cleaned and there's uh, roses just, everywhere. Yeah, there's like it's like an open house where they're showing it to some people and he you know can't find, you know, the, no, there's no trace of anything that he did. And, you know, so then it's like, OK, what actually happened? And when he goes to the um, to that restaurant and he you know talks to his lawyer and is trying to you know say like you know 
I'm Bateman. I'm Patrick Bateman. I called you. This wasn't a joke. This was, and yeah, hats off to the guy who plays the lawyer. He did. He's terrific. Like just trying. The way he's to, looking at him. It's yeah. like so. Oh, mm-hmm. it's a he's great like, scene. He's like confused, like scared, mad, like bewildered, like annoyed, like all at mm-hmm. once. Like he's doing a great job. Uh, I love the because it's become a meme a bit more recently. <laughs> is when why isn't it possible? Why not, you stupid bastard? My, <laughs> my favorite one that I've seen recently is that. It's like a picture of a truck with a giant <laughs> magnet on the front of it with a piece of metal and it doesn't go. He's like, why isn't it possible? <laughs> it's so funny. You know, and then he sits back down. Another great line from Christian Bale is when, uh, like, I think Justin throws like, Bateman, you okay? And he goes, oh, I'm a happy camper. I'm just a happy camper. Rock, <laughs> rock and roll. roll. <laughs> um, and then, you know, he kind of has this then revelation of, you know, my confession means nothing and yeah you know because he did confess to the lawyer yeah he does say like i i did it i killed paul Owen. i i called paul allen i liked it you know and you know he said yeah i ate some of their brains these are all these people i killed did all of this xyz and my first time watching the movie when i discussed them the ending with my brother i remember my initial reading was that i had because of the, again the way that the film presents like detective Kimball as kind of a clear threat or like that there's an actual danger of him being caught. Mm-hmm. I had just kind of accepted that the idea was Bateman did do all these things, but because the society is based on these cookie cutter personalities and everyone basically looks the same and sounds the same and is like, you know, interchangeable with one another. He's kind of able to just fade into the background and get away with these terrible things. Cause that's just what the society perpetuates. And I don't necessarily think that that is a, like, I mean, the idea of the cookie cutter, you know, personality, but it's so much more apparent now after reading the book and seeing the film more and more that like, so much of it, like any part of it could be fantasy or yeah. could be like just, and especially like you mentioned, like in that third person, you know, section where he's running from the police and it goes into him saying Patrick ran as opposed to like I ran, you know? Yeah. Uh, similarly in the book, like he'll constantly have, um, he'll talk in camera angles and camera <laughs> movements as if he's the main character, like mm-hmm. this protagonist as if he's the one controlling the story, but clearly he has no real grasp on what's happening. Yeah. Um, so I definitely think, you know, I, I, I can't really pinpoint which part is more fantasy than the other. I definitely think the police shootout is one that's like <laughs> the fact that he just shoots the two cars and they just explode, explode is this, you know, again, as someone who's obsessed with the idea of the protagonist in pop culture and films and, you know, music, a rock star personality, mm-hmm. he would think of something like that. Right. Yeah. And so I think that it's very much, you know, him just kind of losing his grip and that he's, he almost, again, adding to his cynical view of the world, he kind of just accepts it and knows that like, he'll be able to get away with it again. And it'll just keep, it'll just, the cycle will continue, but it's fun. It's been fun to kind of change my viewpoint on the like actual, like what is real, what isn't like what the actual analysis of the story is. Yeah. You know, Brady Sinellis, he talks about how, uh, again, it, Bateman lives in a fictitious part of New York City. It doesn't exist. Yep. Um, the address does not exist. Um, the opening chapter of the book is called April Fools. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, it starts 
the first day of the book starts on April 1st and Freddy Sinellis says like that in and of itself is supposed to be like right off the bat, kind of a tip to the reader that like this, this might not be real. Like any of what you're reading, mm-hmm. um, like Bateman night might not be real. Like this might yeah. all just be some kind of a dream or an apparition and <laughs> reading Brett Easton Ellis talk about it. I, I, it sounds like he tries really hard to keep up the, could it be real or could it not be? But like reading what he has to say about it, I'm like, it almost sounds like you definitely think it's not real mm-hmm. um and yeah the more i've read the book and seen the movie I, I think you know if there is supposed to be some kind of like uh straight binary interpretation i would lean towards like it's not real bateman's mm-hmm. just a dork yeah um a weirdo freak and you know he drew all those horrible pictures in his little notebook in the movie but doesn't actually act out any of it mm-hmm. um but, you know, there's a few scenes in the book that do kind of, like, bring in the question of, like, maybe it was real. Like, again, the, the wonderful Paul Allen's apartment being up for a real estate showing that real mm-hmm. estate agent, the way she kind of looks at Bateman and uh, kind of almost confronts him. Like, he, like, you need to leave. Don't cause any trouble. Yeah. Um, so it's like, does she is she privy to the fact that there, this was a murder apartment or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, does she just see him for what he is, which is a weirdo. Right. And wants him to leave. Uh, and then in the book, you know, he kills a cab driver, but he mentions he's killed many cab drivers. Mm -hmm. And we get that chapter towards the end where he's in a cab and, and the cab driver recognizes him and says, you know, your face is on wanted posters. Oh yeah. You killed Um, Sully. Yeah, Bateman goes, you've, like, incorrectly identified me, which is so (laughs) funny. Um, But, so, yeah, what do you you think? What's your... Another thing, too, with the film, people point to uh, that kind of infamous... When he's dragging Paul Allen's body out of the apartment and there's, like, blood, there's a trail of blood, and then in the next shot, it's gone, and people Mm -hmm. are like, oh, it's supposed to be... Like, it's not really there. Or it could be an editing error. It could be either (laughs) continuity or they had to clean it quick because they were outside. Maybe they shot the outside first. Yeah, that's what I usually think. It's funny that I would read YouTube comments like, oh my God. Yeah. I I love like any continuity error could be taken for analysis. You know, it's like it's like the chair in the background of The Shining. Like, I don't think that means anything. It could just be Stanley Kubrick fucking with you or they just like filmed the chair. Then they were like, oh, maybe we should get that chair out of here. You know, I I don't know. It's sometimes you could read too much into things. Yeah, I I do think that, you know, most I, I would agree that like most of it is not real. Bateman is constantly and I think it goes in even more into detail in the book of you know he's constantly trying to find some level of importance in his life you know Mm -hmm. he thinks that he's achieved everything that he wants and like he puts value again not only just in pop culture but in the clothes that he wears and the possessions that he has and you know the it's a very different view of materialism than say fight club whereas the main the narrator in fight club almost feels trapped in like this world of capitalism materialism and tries to find a way out of it Whereas Patrick Bateman like revels in it. Like he like kind of loves all of his extravagance and really notices when people are dressed poorly and, you know, why are they wearing that top with that, with those shoes or, you know, 
I had, like you said, you know, I have this painting, even though it's upside down, you know, I have this, I have this, I have this. And just bombarding the viewer with all of this like technical AV equipment that like these are basically just a sequence of letters and numbers that have no actual (laughs) meaning, but to Bateman, the fact that these are arriving on, it's the biggest thing that's happening that day. And it's a Mm -hmm. big part of his life. So he's trying to find some level of importance. And I think he also knows that like he's a dork and that like he's not very well liked um, in his group. And so because of that, and then his just clear overall anger issues, you know, just get in the way. And that creates this murderous tendency. And, you know, he knows that he's physically capable of doing so. And so mm-hmm. that it becomes something to chase and becoming, becoming the, you know, top dog quote unquote in the most up, like in the utmost sense, like becoming this apex predator, like, and being yeah. able to kill so many people and, you know, again, becoming fully in control of the story that he's telling so that when he ends up losing his grip at the end, he doesn't really know how to process that. Because now it seems everything else is out of his control. And, you know, that begins to weigh on him. And now the only thing that he can do, he thinks he's reached this revelation that he has to confess and then, you know, put himself away. But he can't even do that, you know. So it's almost like he reaches the end of a character arc and then it kind of just goes back to the beginning. Which is like, it's cool because you think it, yeah, yeah, you think it hits the end, but then... You're like, nope, there's a little bit more. Yeah, the book and the film both really perfectly show that kind of like cycle. Each mm-hmm. work starts in just like a restaurant or or just talking with his friends about nothing and then ends in the same place. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, that little wonderful, this is not an exit oh, door it's a, it's sign. A great, it's a great ending. In, in both the film and the book. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Because uh, yeah, again, there, there's no escape, no exit to, to this fucking monotonous, boring vapid pointless life that bateman lives and yeah a quick note on the clothes um in the book a lot of the clothes that he describes read as clownish it's mm-hmm. like patterns that really don't go together yeah um uh, in the in the film it's more straightforward they're more nicely dressed um mm-hmm. and then you know of course the food is another weird yeah, thing uh-huh. a lot of foods at these restaurants that would taste horrible and don't go together. Yeah, the peanut butter soup with like <laughs> the Times called it a unique and playful dish. <laughs> Damon loves his his zagats and his restaurants. Yeah, the he my favorite thing. <laughs> one of the weirdest things of the movie is when he goes to lunch with Paul Allen and he's like. He orders, he orders, he goes, J&B straight and a Corona. Like, <laughs> who the fuck drinks J&B and a Corona? Like, that's so weird. Like, they're drinking nothing but Corona, like, throughout this, the entire book. So much mention of Corona. Dry but there's beer. That, yeah, it's like, oh, this is, it's because of Bryce that we're drinking dry beers or Van Patten, you know? Like, that's so strange. But, um, yeah, the, the, the food is a big is a big part of it. And I, that's one thing I love about the, the opening image of the film too. Like, the Oh, blood I forgot how fun. And, yeah. Uh, making the dish and then leading it into the restaurant is a really colorful, playful way to kind of introduce yeah. you to like, not only what, what is valued in this world of the film, mm-hmm. but also kind of setting you up for your expectations where you think that this is just blood dripping. and It's very straightforward, but actually it's, 
going into something that is the most valued like possession of just food that it does pointless consumption pointless consumption spending money and so yeah yeah and so much that goes into this dish that like doesn't make sense you know (laughs) like there was like uh, what's there's I, i don't know if it's a in the in the book, but in the movie, someone says they made like a swordfish meatloaf or something like that. It's like, that sounds awful. Like, yeah, I don't know what or, that is. But at one point, like a, a red snapper on a brioche bun. It's like, that would be way too buttery and like gross. Like yeah. it would just be too much. Um, th- those would not go together at all. Yeah. Um, I love when Paul Allen's like, uh, I got an 830 res at Dorsey. Great (laughs) sea urchin ceviche. (laughs) Oh, we haven't talked about Jared Leto. Yeah. I think we should. Yes. uh, Another great performance. Really? Uh, Yeah. A lot of things have come to light in the last five years that make Jared Leto a piece of shit. But also, again, it makes the performance honestly better. Because he's such a douchebag in this. Like, he is the one who's... Uh, I think he's clearly wearing a wig. Like, I don't know if it, it kind of looks like he's wearing uh, it, a wig. It does look like, like a wig, yeah. But it fits the character because he looks so, like, doofy. And just, like, so weird, but yet... But that's the other thing. That the only in- indication that you have of their, like, you know, relationship with their job is that, like, he has the Fisher account. Yeah. And you don't really know what that is. You know, it's like a Maltese <laughs> Falcon. And he... And because he is this guy who's like top dog, he's got the Fisher account. He was able to get an 830 res at Dorsey. You know, how do you swing that? You know, like, <laughs> and he's does this great, like, you know, how he's constantly calling him Marcus. And he's like, hey, how's the, uh, you know, how's this account going? It's like, oh, it's, uh, it's stable. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not, though. <laughs> like how in his face he is and how he's, he's, he's a little bit richer than Bateman. Mm-hmm, got a nicer right. apartment. And I think it's, you know, I watched this with my boyfriend and he, he, very hilariously pointed out that Jared Leto is so perfect looking to the point where it's almost inhuman. Yeah. Like, and freakish. Yeah. Um, and it works perfectly. And, and when, and you know, we talked about that for a second and I was like, well, maybe that would have made him a good Bateman, but then like, well, no, it works because Paul Allen is supposed to be what Bateman is, is jealous of at at least the way I see it, Mm -hmm. which is ridiculous because it's like, they're all on the same playing field. Like you're you're all already the 1%. There's nothing else. What else is there to strive for? Right. And yet he still finds ways to, to want more. Mm -hmm. And Paul Allen represents that. And I think in the film, Paul Allen being so perfect looking, but still doofy, like you said. Yeah. He's kind of squirrely. Like he's clearly smaller than Christian. Yeah. Like he's shorter and kind of scrawnier. Cause his suits are like, his suit is almost like too big. (laughs) Like his coat is so big in that, uh, in that um, meeting room scene. But yeah, the fact that he is the ideal. Well, the other thing that I wanted to mention a little earlier, but like, you know, uh, the constant references to Donald Trump in the book, like how constantly that's the, that is the ideal, you know, the someone's reading the art of the deal at some point in the book, constantly being like, Oh, Donald Trump likes this. If Don likes it, you know, he calls him by like Don or Donnie or something like that. (laughs) Is that Ivanka Trump? Yeah. Is that that Ivanka Trump? Yeah. And, uh, I like, I was mistaken. That clearly is not Ivanka Trump or something like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, like that, constant strive for the like absolute most ideal version of yourself and that is your role model and so the only thing um 
it, like he he idolizes Alan, but he also like resents him because of that Fisher account. Like he strives mm-hmm. to be him, but he wants to take him out. Whereas Donald yeah. Trump is like God. And obviously, you know, in 2022, I would say that aged pretty well, personally. <laughs> I think I think that's a good uh, I think that was a good addition to the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brady Sinellis, he talks about that um, in white and how he was not surprised when Donald Trump got elected in 2016. And, and he was not surprised by the rabid insanely dedicated cult following that Trump managed to garner because Mm -hmm. he said that in the eighties when he was doing research for the book and hanging out with wall street guys, like that's what he saw firsthand that like Mm -hmm. all these wall street boys were completely obsessed with Donald Trump and like Mm -hmm. idolized him. Yeah. And so in 2016, Brady Sinellis kind of was not surprised that he won the election uh, but but yeah, and so all these Wall Street guys that he hung out with in the eighties, like they all had read the Art of the Deal, they all worshipped Trump. Mm-hmm. One other thing I was just thinking of uh, that is a, another fun kind of playful gag. I mean, playful, but also obviously very fucked up is how people just don't listen to each other. Yeah, you know? no one like, no one cares. And not only is it like you know we think it's you know we're talking to completely different people, but like the fact that. Patrick can just say like to Paul Allen, like, you know, I like to dismember girls, you know, (laughs) totally insane. You know, my favorite version of that is when, you know, he's like, "Um, what do you do? And he goes, well, I'm into uh, well, murders and executions mostly. And she's like, well, most guys that I know who are into mergers and acquisitions, like don't really like it. And that's just (laughs) such a great like no one's impressed. No one is listening to each other. They're only yeah. thinking about themselves and what's important to them. And what's important to them really isn't anything. Like, it's just like, oh, there's that person or there's this person. And it's so funny how, again, the fact that he's able to just like outwardly say these horrendous things and no one, it doesn't register, you know, with, with anybody. Like there's that scene in that same scene uh, when he's having lunch with Paul Allen, he's like, yeah, he was like, Jane, be straight, Anna Corona. And uh, the waiter's like, would you like to hear our specials? And Bateman goes, not if you want to keep your spleen. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and I wonder if that's where, again, Brady Sinellis and White talking about how he was trying to, to write Bateman as a sympathetic character kind of failed, in my opinion. I don't think Bateman is sympathetic. Um, in the but- book, absolutely not. No. <laughs> yeah, Unequivocally, no. <laughs> it is so... Like, it's interesting to follow him, and yeah. I enjoy the journey, but under no circumstance do I feel bad for him. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. Well, and and because I think Brady Stanellis is trying to convey, again, the, the plight of being not noticed when you're just desperately trying to reach out and connect and not being able to connect. Um, but it's like... you. you you, you've done that in your other books. Like it's okay. To, you don't have to do it with Patrick Bateman, but I think it's interesting because I have, it, it, I have observed that the character of Patrick Bateman, mostly in the film, I don't think these people have read the book, but Bateman has become lumped with like Tyler Durden, mm-hmm. Heath Ledger's Joker, <laughs> Ryan Gosling and drive as like, these like ultra masculine men who like represent like like we like they know what's wrong with society and they rebel against it or are gonna take revenge and i i like i feel like that's a reading of bateman's character that i see a lot on the internet 
Um, I don't know if you've seen that at all. Mostly head, just like head, YouTube comments. My head is um, in my hands. I hate. Yeah. That. Can people <laughs> and, just and, read things? I know. Like, is, and is, it's, that, is that hard? Like, yeah, because <laughs> it's funny. Because it, it's just like I don't think that's what Bateman's character represents at all. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think he he's taking revenge against a society that he's disgusted with. He's disgusted with society, but he's disgusted with like everything. He yeah. he he's a total misanthrope. Again, he says in the book and the film, I do not wish for a better world for anyone. Yeah. Um, so so it's like it's not like he is seeing society and is disgusted by it because it's like he takes part in it and he wants to. Yeah. Like he wants to fit in. So I think it's kind of dumb that people have misread. And, you know, we probably talked about it in our Fight Club episode, too, that Tyler Durden's character got kind of um, co-opted and misunderstood in a similar way. Yeah, it, it's it's funny. Because again, you know, there's that Fight Club connection of that, yeah, the mis uh, misinterpreted, the misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah, because I don't know. Like the more <laughs> I watch these movies, the more it becomes so apparent that it is clearly not an endorsement. Yeah, like it's probably no- to be fair, it's probably teenagers saying shit like this. Like probably, it's probably teenage boys. Yeah. Neither of those characters have an actual grip on reality (laughs) like that's the point of the story specifically the fact that you know tyler durden and the narrator are the same person you know so like the fact that that revelation happens at the end you know tyler becomes the bad guy like that's how that works you know and in this one again it adds to the irony of in the film well obviously in the book but in the film when Patrick says, like, you know, we got to end apartheid. We got to work on the schooling system. We got to, as if he actually cares about a better tomorrow. He doesn't. And then the the next scene is him, you know, walking down the street and being super creepy to a woman as he's crossing the street. And then the scene after that is him yelling at the uh, dry cleaners, like the man and woman, just like screaming at them. Like, if you don't shut your fucking mouth, I will kill you. Like, it just... (laughs) clearly has no real like actual aspirations or plan to you know he's not yeah he's not this psycho killer superhero type figure as he thinks that he is you know Mm. um he's just he's just insane like he's just a guy who again is trying to find meaning in his own life but he doesn't care like about all of that like he just kind of wants to fit in he wants to fit in in a an incredibly toxic and I hate to use the term, but problematic society, <laughs> I think is the, you know, is obviously the point, but it's not yeah. trying to say like, I'm, he's not like I'm making the world better. You know, he's just yeah, like, I'm or, doing this cause I can and I want to like, that's yeah. pretty much it. You know? Or, or I don't, it, yeah. It's, it's not like I'm taking revenge. It's I'm doing this, like you said, because I can and I want to. And yeah, why not? Yeah. The, the moral of the story is not like, oh, if only if we fixed the world and Patrick wouldn't have gone down this route. It's like, no, Patrick yeah, is yeah. part of the problem. You realize that? Like he's like or he this, is the problem. And this know? world enables yeah. like, people like Patrick. Like that's the point. Like, yeah. I, I mean, uh, it's, it also almost kind of like uh, in tandem with the argument of people saying like, OK, like the violence you know, causes, you know, people to act out violently or like works like this. And it's like, well, we can't blaming the art is to just kind of miss the actual issue of violence of, uh, you know, other of other issues rather than just like finding a scapegoat in an artist or an artist's work. Like, I don't think that that's a fair argument. And so it's funny how misinterpreted 
this character can be because I don't know. I just find it so apparent that it's not only is it satire, but it's like he's so wrong. It's <laughs> like has nothing together, like doesn't know what he's saying, doesn't know what he's doing. Clearly, he has no grip on reality. Like, what is the, the why is that the role model? Yeah, you know? I think <laughs> I think, again, that interpretation typically comes from the film rather than the book. I don't think these people that say this have like mm-hmm. read the book. I, I think it's, it's definitely more apparent to, in the book. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. And I, I think it's easy to pin that kind of characterization of like well, Patrick Bateman. He sees what's wrong in society and he's acting out against it. I think it's easier to pin that on a handsome charismatic actor mm-hmm. than a 400 page novel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you have a face for it, it's easier. That's that's true. But w- would you like to hear a fun little Brett Easton Ellis? You know, he takes a second to talk about what um, uh, Bateman possibly would have looked like in, oh, in the 21st century. Please. Would, you like to, would you like to hear? I think it's interesting because, you know, reading the novel, I was like, Man, I, I do wonder what it would be like if this was set today. Mm-hmm. Uh, firstly, I think Army Hammer would be an excellent casting <laughs> <choice>. <laughs> Like He's really got the method acting down, uh-huh. it seems. So, th- so this is in regards to, uh, yeah, if Patrick Bateman, if the book was set today. I'm ready. In the period when the novel takes place, Patrick Bateman already belongs to the as-yet-unnamed 1%, as he probably still would today. But would he be living somewhere else and with different interests? Would better forensics, not to mention the Big Brother cameras on virtually every corner, prevent him from getting away with the murders he at least tells the reader he has committed? Or would his expression of rage take any other form? Would he haunt social media as a troll using fake avatars? Would he have a Twitter account bragging about his accomplishments? Would he be showcasing his wealth, his abs, his potential victims on Instagram? During Patrick's 80s reign, he still had the ability to hide, a possibility that simply doesn't exist in our fully exhibitionistic society. Because he wasn't so much a character to me as an emblem, an idea, I'd probably approach him again by addressing his greatest fear. What if no one was paying him any attention? Something that upsets Bateman terribly is that due to corporate culture conformity, no one can really tell anybody else apart. And the novel asks, what difference does it make anyway? (laughs) People are so lost in their narcissism that they're unable to distinguish one one individual from another, which is why Patrick gets away with his crimes, even if they're in a fictional scenario. This also illuminates how few things have really changed in American life since the late 80s. They've just become more exaggerated and more accepted. Patrick's obsession with his likes and dislikes and with detailing everything he owns, wears, eats, and watches has reached a new apotheosis. In many respects, American Psycho is one man's ultimate series of selfies. So what do you, what do you think about that? Would, would Bateman be a troll? I think that is a... <laughs> well, first of all, I think that is incredibly well-written. That is, uh, yeah, uh, Barry Sinellis, he's a genius. I just an, I adore an, him. It's an unbelievably well-written piece. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of interesting. You know, I think... I definitely think he would flock to the idea of social media. I, I think yeah. that he would kind of thrive on like Reddit and 4chan, <laughs> whether it be with fake avatars or actually being like a known presence. I don't think he would be um, uh, like, you know, Pat, the real Pat Bateman, you know, that would be his <laughs> name. I like the idea of using like fake avatars and like constantly, cause he would get banned so many times. Yeah. But I, I don't know. That's tough because I one of the I think one of the great successes of the book is that it's set in the 80s. 
I think it works so well that it's um, in a in an era where technology hasn't reached a good like uh, a big enough point where the only real yeah. connection to technology is, you know, like some people have like, you know, the giant cell phones. Yeah. Um, and it it makes it plausible that he would be able to get away with so much stuff. And so I don't know, like logistically you know, how that would, they would have to work around that for the story to make it as, you know, kind of this tug of war in your head of like, is this real? Is this not real? Like, would he be able to get away with it? Would he not? Like, I'm not really uh, sure. But I I definitely think, you know, with, he would find a community, you know, I think it would, <laughs> it would definitely be, he would definitely find a group of people that doesn't necessarily exist in a, you know, a fancy restaurant in the smoking section, just, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ordering some random hodgepodge of like fancy food items, you know, mm-hmm. I think it just would exist in, uh, like in an alternate platform, like on the internet or like kind of also then just adding to his loneliness. I don't think he would meet with these people like in person. I think he almost yeah. like constantly like reaffirming his own positions or like, going deeper into the grips of uh, or his lack of grip on reality of, of wondering if these people are real or if the, um, you know, the community that he found himself in actually like are real tangible people. Like, I think that would again, create more of a disconnect. So it's interesting. Like I, I, I'm not really sure, you know what that would look like. I think there's a lot that you probably could do a lot to be worked out again with like the big brother surveillance cameras and yeah. how we're monitored, how monitored we are. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. Did any of that make sense of what I said? No, it made it made perfect sense, and and I I enjoyed hearing your answer. Um, and and I think it's 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 a fun question to answer, even though there's almost no point. And Brett Easton, not to like that sounded like I was like cutting you down, but um, Brett Easton Ellis talks about how it's almost moot, and and he would get a little frustrated at people asking him like, what would Patrick Bateman be like in the 21st century? Because the book still holds true, like mm-hmm. it, like everything that the book is, you know, trying to make a commentary on, and the the overconsumption, bloated, decadent, consumeristic, yeah. capitalistic society, like it, it all still holds true. And and he mentions yeah. that too, like like not much has changed, yeah, um, except well, for the- our tech and surveillance. Yeah. Well, and this toxic personality is something we find constantly. And again, in the Trump era and seeing who like from the side of on a, on a presidential aspect, who is more valued than the rest, you know, yeah. who is put, um, you know, on the highest pedestal, who like does, who does he pardon? Who does he, you know, appoint? Who does he endorse it? Um, just this very specific group of people that is depicted in you know and obviously satirized to great effect in this story is you know that is a character that's never going to go away you know whether it's obviously like an actual conspiratorial mass murdering maniac (laughs) is obviously open to much interpretation but that Mm -hmm. idea the idea of patrick bateman is always around and is always going to be around and you know we see it constantly. So it's, yeah. I agree that it is a bit moot to kind of go into the specifics of how the story would do if you were to like, let's just say like remake American Psycho. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't, yeah. Um, but it is, it is interesting. And the fact that the book, you know, because the Reagan era was such a turning point for us and as, oh, as yeah. Americans and, you know, that the idea of the male persona completely shifted, you know, um, yeah, 
I, I think it, it just works so well the time and place that everything takes place in the story uh it just uses it to its advantage and it just kind of worked out that it echoed so truth truthfully today you know yeah yeah and and i think that's in part to you know just how uh you know society unfortunately hasn't really changed and yeah. also just bright easton ellis being unbelievably talented absolutely yeah well We've talked so much about this story, and I'm sure we could keep going. But uh, I think I think we should get to the big final question. You know, at the end of all of these episodes, we ask after reading and watching the film, which one of the works speaks to you more, the book or the film, or are they equal in your mind? I gotta say, the book. Um, mm-hmm. I do. I f- I forgot how much I loved the book. Um, for a while, I considered it my favorite novel, and you know, I think that's changed just as I've read more novels throughout my life. Um, but it's still one of my favorites and it, it's just Bright Easton Ellis as a, as an author, just a huge influence on, you know, myself and how mm-hmm. I write. Um, and it just, it, it's just, it's just such a good book and just the absurdism because again, the film is phenomenal. Um, and it does have those great flashes of, of absurdism, such as the feed me a stray cat. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Bateman trying to find, figure out how to shove a kitten into a An ATM. ATM machine. Just with how absurd the book is, uh, very quickly I'd like to bring up when the one prostitute talks about how she uh, had to babysit a billionaire's pet monkey. <laughs> and it just it only wanted to watch like like the Oprah Winfrey show and would yeah, scratch uh-huh. her if she changed the channel like <laughs> stuff like that it, it's mm-hmm. just the book gives us so Brady Stanellis gives us so much wonderful strange weird mm-hmm. <laughs> like, moments and it, it, it's just it's so good and the dialogue like I'd never get tired of reading it it's never boring which is mm. a feat when there's chapters that just go on for eight or nine pages just talking about Genesis. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I I just, I really love the book. Um, don't think I'll reread it again for a while. And on this reading, I, I had to skim, if not outright skip, a lot of the gore. Um, it is a I, lot. It is yeah, pretty... My, my stomach has gotten weaker as I've aged. So yeah, I had, had to skip a lot of it, but... I just I I do I do think it's just such a phenomenal book. It's hard. It's one of those things. It's hard to recommend to people because it is a lot graphic violence, graphic pornographic sex, yeah. um, lots of ugly language. Oh yeah, Patrick's a horrible, terrible racist, and yeah, it's bad. It's just, but it is a really good book. Yeah, <laughs> so. we didn't really talk about the um, the sex scenes. They are. They're just straight Ooh. pornography. Like, yeah, they, like they read as pornography. There's nothing. And 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 I think again, it's just the over over consumption, over mm-hmm. like it, it, extravagant, over the top, completely empty. Just it, he does a really good job depicting sex as again just another thing to be consumed. Yeah, and just done thoughtlessly and mindlessly. Yeah, as and, almost like a procedure. You know. A step yeah, oh by yeah. Step kind of. Uh, you know from foreplay to actual sex and then someone else gets involved and like how, how involved and how detailed it is and how like he has moments where he's like, they leave and I finish myself off in the bathroom, you know? So so you're not even really getting anything out of it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, But there's no, no actual human connection at all during something that should really stand for human connection. Um, 
again, I, necessary, I think. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think it wouldn't be the same if, if it was all cut out. I, I think it's again, interesting that his first iteration of the novel was not going to have like any of the pornographic sex, any of the violence. When I think, you know, both those facet assets, uh, make the book like what it is. Yeah. Obviously. Mm-hmm. But what, what is your answer, Josh? It's really tough, honestly, because I've all, I love the movie ever since I saw it and rewatching it. It's still, it's funny. I rewatched it last summer at one point and I was just blown away by it. And then rewatching it for this, you know, series, it like just doesn't get old for me, but I, I think I am going to say the book as well. Oh, because, wow. Uh, I, there was just so much more to it. There was, it was some of the lines that are taken out are so funny. There's just a, <laughs> an incredible amount of humor in it. And again, adding more to the Bateman character of really doubling down on him being such a fucking dork. Oh, and like how, uh, you know, socially awkward he is. Very, very quickly. We didn't talk about, cause like you said, fleshing out the Bateman character more, we get that great little chapter of when he goes to visit his mom. Oh Which yeah, is, we didn't even funny. talk about that. I yeah, I forgot. Like yeah, he has like there's two chapters where we get introduced to his family. One is his yeah. brother, and one is his mom. That's right. Yeah, and she's she's in the hospital, right? Isn't yeah, cool? or or mm-hmm. like a nursing home. Yeah, and just an incredibly bleak feeling. Yeah, depressing chapter. Some like like the only real kind of grounded <laughs> moment where she's just like you know oh you look fine like what do you you know how do you feel about this what are you gonna or, do and he's or, just or, like, I, or I think she says you look sad like yeah and he upset. just like doesn't really know what to do yeah and, like, he doesn't go delving deep into the feelings of like uh oh well i got the fisher account and like this, <laughs> I'm, I'm having dinner with this person like he's just kind of like lost like you can yeah. kind of see that feeling of just like it's it's very bleak you're right <laughs> um just such a Great, great little chapter. Mm-hmm. But I was nervous going into this episode because I was I wanted to make sure I had enough to talk about because I was so swept up in the novel of just like wanting to go through it as an experience and just mm-hmm. making sure I got as much as possible and not focusing on that like, okay, we're doing an episode on this, but I wanted to actually enjoy the reading experience. And I like just couldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it is extremely graphic and it's extremely visceral and like hard to get through like i mean without going into certain details there's the the lunch with britney chapter bethany yeah yeah, where he kills her yeah i had to that was like that's kind of the i mean the rat thing's pretty (laughs) the rat thing's pretty bad too i'm not saying it's not but the bethany one goes on longer i think it does that one's really really hard to get through but like Again, the way that he structures all of this, all these ideas about consumption and reality and, you know, toxic masculinity and just like materialism. Success. It's, it's, yeah, excess. It's so, you know, brilliant. It's so well done. It's so well utilized. And again, I think comparing it to Fight Club, you know, I think it's just a well realized version of that. Yeah, I think it it does what Fight Club tried to do, but better. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if like you were saying, like, in my opinion. No, yeah, I agree. Um, how Palinik, like thought it was going to be this comment on capitalism, materialism, but like I think American Psycho just does that like differently and, and just better. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I still I still like Fight Club. Don't get me wrong, but uh, yeah, I think this book kind of it really just blew me away. 
I wasn't expecting to like it as much oh, as I did. Yay. And so it was a breeze to read. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I think it was the perfect one uh, to end our series on. I agree. It's mm-hmm. It's been, you know, we started this back in August. We did it. Long time. Wow. Can you believe, how do you feel? How do you feel it, at oh, the I end feel here? Good. It's just been, it's been a, it's been a great little series. Um, yeah. Very rewarding to have people, you know, my friends tell me that they've been following along and reading the book and. Oh, good. Just a lot of, a lot of, I, I think it's been a great series. I, I think so too. Do you have any big takeaways that you've kind of gathered from the series about like some of the adaptations we've been <sighs> thinking about and. I mean, it's, you know, we've done so much. We've read a lot. You know, we've yeah. uh, read some very different titles. I mean, if you want, we can go through uh, which ones we <laughs> did. You know, we did uh, Fight Club, Ghost World, No Country for Old Men, The Green Knight, Play It As It Lays, Call Me By Your Name, and now uh, American Psycho. Did I forget? Anything? I thought we did eight. Did, did we forget something? Did I, what did I forget? Oh, the, the piano, the piano teacher. teacher. That's right. Yeah, the piano teacher. The pian- Duh. Of course, the piano teacher. Um, and what's what's fun is like our answers were fairly varied on which ones we did. I think we both agreed the film for Fight Club. We both yeah. agreed the the book for Ghost World. Mm-hmm. Um, I said they were equal for No Country. Matt liked the movie more. You liked the book more. Mm. Um, I like the film for the piano teacher more. You like the book. Mm-hmm. We were both the story for the Green Knight. We were both the book for Play It As It Lays. Mm-hmm. And I was more the film for Call Me By Your Name and you were more uh, equal. I think, And then yeah. now, yeah, we were both the book for American Psycho. So yeah. how about that? Yeah. I, oh man, I, f- I forgot you asked me to think about big takeaways. <laughs> uh, oh man. Well, I want to hear what you what you yeah. think first so I can copy off your answers. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I, I definitely don't, I, I, I don't want this to be an exercise in being like, well, the book is always better. Like that's not, <laughs> the, that's not the case. And it's also not the case that the movie's always better. I, I think I, I really enjoyed focusing on the difference in authorship and finding the different voices of, uh, of the films and the, and the books and some, in some cases realizing how the book presents like such a perfect idea and sometimes it can get lost in translation in the movie or other times where the book has a nugget of an idea and then film language takes it over and brings it, you know, to life where, you know, like I said, with no country, like Cormac McCarthy and the Cohen, the Cohen brothers, like that's a match made in heaven, but they both made their own versions of that story. Mm-hmm. And somehow that's just like a, a perfect adaptation in that sense. And you can tell which is which with ghost world, they made like a whole new story with that film, essentially like using the original text as a branching off point and bringing in ideas and putting a new, a whole new character. Um, And while like, I mean, again, I wasn't the biggest fan of that film, but like it was an interesting exercise. And then, you know, with like the piano teacher, that is a a dense text Mm -hmm. and having to weave your way through you know, pages and pages of metaphorical, personal, emotional, you know, abuse and uh, trauma and finding like the perfect points to construct the story out of is really tough. And like to really see the through lines and what works and what doesn't. And, you know, how we kind of found that the Green Knight and Played As It Lays movies weren't super successful Um, or how Call Me By Your Name is like tonally different and like very different from each other. But like, are somewhat the same story, but from two completely different angles and both are successful in their own right. And so it's just been really exciting to see how filmmakers and authors are taking the same story, 
but their different mediums allow them to do different things. And so they have to kind of, you know, that's just how an adaptation works. You have to really think about the film medium and visual language and allowing that to take over rather than just being, here's the book on screen. Um, yeah. And so it's been, it's honestly, it's been a delight to do that. And yeah, I, I've, I I've really enjoyed myself. I mean, I have, I have not much to add. I yeah. agree. It, it, yeah. Um, yeah. It's been, it's been very, very fun. Mm-hmm. And, and I love getting to talk about like the book Yeah. Um, for everything that we read. Cause I don't get to do too much of that, especially being done with school. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. I've, I've loved our little book club. It's been great. Yeah. <laughs> I love our book club too. Um, before we go, I want to do two really quick things. One, I wanted to mention just a couple of some of my other favorite film to our book to movie adaptations that we kind of worth tossing around. Um, but, uh, didn't really, uh, make the list. One of them that was, uh, that I, we almost did, but ended up scrapping because it's a little too long is one floor of the cuckoo's nest. If you've oh, never yeah. read or seen one floor of the cuckoo's nest, I highly recommend doing it. It's one of the most you know classic American films and the book is so good. The book mm-hmm. is a phenomenal novel and very different from the movie not necessarily in terms of like overall story. I think it follows that like the two follow story, but like again, structurally the way that the story is positioned uh, is really, is really great. And so that's, that's one of my favorites. I also really highly recommend the book um, room by Emma Donahue that was oh, adapted. Yeah. Um, I forgot about that. Yeah. That was adapted into a, a film in great 2016 movie. with uh, Brie Larson, um, which is, I, I thought it was a good movie. I thought she was really good, but the book again, from what point of view it's told, I think is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so during this whole process, actually, right after we were doing No Country for Old Men, I started reading uh, through the month of December. I read uh, Elena Ferrante's novel, The Lost Daughter, which was oh. adapted by Maggie Gyllenhaal into her first feature film for Netflix at the end of last year. And she got nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Jesse Buckley and Olivia Coleman were nominated. That is a an fascinating story i think the book is fantastic and i honestly think the movie is just as good yeah and i think they're they're equal in my mind because they are like the book itself almost could be seen as unfilmable because of how it's told yeah but and so some significant changes had to be made but again tonally and structurally it felt like maggie joan hall told the story that she wanted to tell and made it work for film and so they're both expertly told story so I would, I would highly recommend and it, honestly it made me enjoy the movie more because i think if i watched the movie just as itself i wouldn't be as into it but knowing the story and really reading up on you know just just reading the book and knowing what i was getting into and what stayed the same and what changed made the experience for me a lot better and yeah. i think the movie's great i think the book is fantastic the book it's 140 pages it is like a mm-hmm. really brief read so i think i think definitely check out um those those titles do you have any uh final recommendations or um there let's see you know jesus's son one of my favorite books ever it's a collection of short stories but it's you know the same main character throughout um got uh, adapted into a film which i think was like a nice little uh kind of become a cult film Mm -hmm. i haven't seen the film but i've read the book multiple times it's like one of my favorites um, as I mentioned earlier in this episode, Rules of Attraction had a film adaptation. 
um, that I started but then never finished. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got distracted and just never circled back to the movie. Um, but the book I've read multiple times, one of my favorite books. Um, y- you know, with Rules of Attraction, James Vanderbeek plays Sean Bateman. Oh, and really? I hate James Vanderbeek. <laughs> I I can't stand him. I think it was. I think it's really dumb casting. But like everybody else was cast perfectly. <laughs> I, I I hate James Vanderbeek. Um, um, the Sound and the Fury, mm-hmm. one of my favorite books ever, and it has a film adaptation, and that I've heard is remarkably horrible. Yeah. And um, you know, for everyone who's familiar with The Sound and the Fury but not familiar with the film, don't look up the trailer yet. I, I want you to think who was casted as, who would be a good casting as Benji. Mm-hmm. Just think really hard about it and then go watch the trailer and see who plays Benji. I was shocked. Yeah. <laughs> it's laughable. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, if we ever do a spinoff series of, of horrible film adaptations, we could do the sound and the fury. And uh, I also thought the road is, is a very shitty adaptation. Yes. Um, oh, that movie is so lukewarm. I hate that movie. Yeah. I do not uh, like that movie at all. So and that's another one. Yeah. That book right. is incredible. I re- yeah, I recommend the book. Amazing yeah. book, but a uh, terrible adaptation. Yeah, do, I do not like that movie at all. Um, and then didn't didn't Moby Dick have a film adaptation? It did. Did it I was, make that up? No, it did. It was uh, directed by John Huston with Gregory Peck. That's uh, f- famously not good, but I haven't seen oh, it. Oh, that could be another one. Oh, and then um, another one, you know, that um, fucking To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. That, that would have been a good, maybe yeah. someday. I love to kill a mockingbird. I, I love the book. And I, I don't loved, care. It's such I, a great book. Uh, yeah, don't apologize. It's a phenomenal book. I, I love the book. Again, one of my favorites. And I think the adaptation is excellent. Okay. So that would have been a good little choice. But, you know, we had to make some tough decisions. There's a lot of them out there. Yeah, it's, a lot it's of adaptations. To, it's hard to get your own down. ideas, Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this was really fun. Last thing I wanted to do is just extend a huge thank you to you Rihanna for coming on and doing this series with me I I couldn't have picked a better person to co-host this show with um, for this series you were fantastic I really thank you for all your time and dedication and also for just being a wonderful friend I love you very very much and greatly valued our time together doing this and uh, so Thank you very much. You're welcome back anytime. Oh, and I think well, I think we did you. some really great work here together. Yeah, I agree. I, f- I feel very proud. Um, and I and I got to spend time with one of my best friends, and uh, and it's just been very fun. Thank yeah. you for having me, and and of course, doing the series artwork has been a blast. Yes, yes, uh, absolutely. We'll definitely have to have you do some more for us at some point. Yeah, because yeah, you're I, a phenomenal artist. Oh, um, thank you. So uh, that's it for off the shelf, guys. That's, it's a wrap. Everyone. That is a wrap. So we're gonna take a, a little bit of a break, probably like a, a month or so hiatus, and we're gonna record some standalone episodes, going back to the uh, roots of Frankly I Love Movies, and then uh, we are currently in the works for our next series. So be on the lookout Ooh. for some announcements about that. But we're gonna take a short break, and then we'll come back with some really fun standalone episodes for you guys can't wait to share that with you so thank you again rihanna you're welcome uh, thank you bye everybody bye everyone it's been so fun thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of frankly i love movies off the shelf 
You can follow us on Instagram at frankly I love movies and at frankly underscore podcasts on Twitter. Our show is produced by Sullivan J. Harris with music by Kanan Harris and series artwork by Rihanna Henson. I'm Rihanna Henson. I'm Josh Wall. Frankly, I love books. And frankly, I love movies. <laughs>